time for Type 40, your Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook for the Fandom Podcast Network. With me, Dan Hadley, Birmingham's king of the geeks, your designated driver. I'm materialising again here with Doctor Who conversation on our free-speaking, big-thinking show for everyone. Whatever decade or century you started watching, reading or listening along to the adventures of our hero, Doctor Who. We talk about it all on this show and there could even be the odd laugh or two along the way. It's Doctor Who's 60th anniversary year. Come and step into our TARDIS here on Type 40. Here we are again to take in all things space and time, time and space and uh, teeth and curls this time had to get that one in early didn't i and we'll get to him in due course as part of our diamond reviews another classic series story getting the type 40 treatment here this time can't wait to get stuck into it the classic series is full of all sorts of gems sometimes they're ones we've seen dozens of times we know know them line for line other times, there's uh, the, the little ones tucked away here or there that we kind of look through in episode guides and think, I'll get round to that one day. And it's those stories that are kind of surprising and delighting me, me the most. Could be a spoiler for later on. So I've got lots to get into, lots to share, to share with my fellow travellers. So I'm going to bring them in. We've got you yeah, ready to brave the woodland and the, and the pentagrams. At review 1977's classic, Image of the Fendel, starring the great Tom Baker. Back again, Simon Horton. Well, greetings, and it's lovely to be back talking about one of my favourite topics, Tom Baker. <laughs> uh, I, 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 could, I think I could talk about Tom Baker stories till the cows come home, quite frankly. And cows actually do feature in Image of the Fendel. <laughs> <laughs> they do. I thought, I wonder if Simon's ready to, to talk about all this, but you're always ready to oh. talk about the Tom Baker era and the Peter Daphne. <laughs> always, always, always ready. I'm always ready to talk about any classic years, but, but um, yeah, Tom Baker is my doctor and so has a very, very close place in my heart. This is pure gold for me, this is. Proper Doctor Who. <laughs> true, true Doctor Who. It gets no better than the Tom Baker years, in my opinion. This is part of our Diamond Anniversary season of reviews. Reviews of classic and new Doctor Who, all in the mix. We know that this is far from the first word on any of this, and it's certainly not intended as the last word either. It's just the latest word on these classic chunks of Doctor Who's long history that we've certainly double-dipped, triple-dipped on across various formats over the years, haven't we, Simon? And joining us again this time, I'm happy to say we have, uh, yeah, a regular panellist now. He's here and uh, happy to cavort with us through <laughs> through the woodland of the 1970s and through Television Centre and the three-wall sets and everything that we love so much about 1970s Doctor Who. It's our mate Stephen Noonan. We were talking about John Pertwee last time and, it, and we've got him, Tom, in his... In the Pertwee costume here. I didn't know. Do oh. I, that's the, 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 the robot or end of Planet of the Spiders. Yeah, uh, I've never seen got, one of those before. Uh, yeah, that, it's rather odd, isn't it, to see Tom without a scarf? It is. Well, of course, but of course, at the beginning of this story, it's one of those, one of those rare moments, isn't it, yeah. in, in the TARDIS, where he practically plays the whole scene scarfless. Yes. And um, you said Tom's your doctor. I'm sort of slightly schizophrenic about doctors because both John Pertwee and Tom Baker I consider to be my doctors. I started with John and then had to make the extraordinary transition to, to acclimatise to Tom Baker. And it's a bit of a cliche, but by about episode two of The Ark in Space, 
I'd accepted him. I never yes. forgot John. <laughs> Part of me always wanted Pertwee to come back, perhaps at times <laughs> in Tom's era when it wasn't as, as, as uh, I wasn't quite as enthusiastic as I was at other times. You know, I felt more like that. But um, no, they are my two doctors. I think we are literally identical age. I grew up with, with John Pertwee and, and I cried at the end of Planet of the Spiders when, when John Pertwee, in my opinion, well, is when the doctor died, um, I was yeah. heartbroken. To be honest, I would say that John, Tom and Peter Davison are all my doctors. That's my absolute era. He's not greedy, uh, Stephen. He's not greedy. Some people love them all, don't they? Equally, they, they do, that, you know, and, and, that's, and good for them, you know. There's others I like more or less than others. Pertwee was always bang on the money of yes. natural and playing it down the line of a particular sort of realism. Peter Davison the same, you know. Yeah. Was, and, was, and, Tom, was... and Tom the same. But we'll talk about, the, as I see it, the, the, the differences in Tom's performance as, as, the, uh, as, the, as the era went on. Um, as we talk about this story, because of course this story is is at a a turning point, isn't it? At a crossroads. It's, a, it's 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 the third story of a new producer's regime, and and it's and there's a difference of tone that's coming into the program. I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm speaking to a couple of seventies kids here. Oh yeah, and, and uh, yeah, the series <laughs> absolutely was in a wow. transition phase, and it was yeah. one that was probably coming because a show like Doctor Who that runs for decades, it's right that it does go through transitions and evolve and shift and move to the side as long as it's yeah. moving kind of kind of forward. Mm -hmm. But obviously, we're talking about the nineteen seventies and, and what had occurred as a child growing up in the seventies. If Doctor Who was losing any power to scare you at this moment in time, I can guarantee that one person, one figure that was popular, well, popular, prevalent in the British media around that time, she almost certainly would scare every 70s kid, and that was uh, Mrs. Mary Whitehouse, <laughs> the, the scourge <laughs> of British school children, and uh, everything she got a problem with was everything that you, presumably guys, both of you wanted more of. Am, am I in the ballpark? I'm well, afraid so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I've always argued this, that, that she was supposedly arguing on our behalf that we were apparently going to be terrified <laughs> of these things, and I was absolutely loving it. Although I would say, as an adult, I'm not normal. I would consider myself as probably just so, so slightly... <laughs> breaking news, everybody, breaking news. Simon Hall, <laughs> not normal. Slightly mad. But she never... Let's be honest, I'm, I'm still here. She didn't do me any harm. You know? Thank you, God bless you, Mary, but I didn't actually need your help. I was fine. 77 is the year that she was most vociferous about. Well, she had been th throughout the Hinchcliffe years. But this yes. is when... That her onslaught had an effect. Yeah, and, because she and... had, hadn't she? She'd come down hard on on uh, certain Hinchcliffe stories, particularly the Deadly Assassin. I understand mm -hmm. the talents of Wing Chiang. She was not happy with that either. So when you look back at at these times, when because Mary, for for younger people who are who are listening, who are watching. You may not be aware that this is Mrs. Mary Whitehouse, and she headed up the National Viewers and Listeners Association, which mm. has evolved all these decades on into, into Ofcom, hasn't it? A mm. different kind of body, really. But it really was headed by this little old lady, this middle-aged yeah. little old lady, who would appear constantly in the media, wouldn't she, bringing mm. programme makers to task, Simon, and particularly yeah. the, the BBC. But when you look back on this time, Stephen, I mean, do you think that Mary and people like her were necessary evils, uh, that had their hearts in the right place, 
or well, she definitely. I think I think in her defence, um, and people like that, they felt very strongly. And bear in mind, you know, given her age and everything, television had come into being as a mass influence on on what people were doing all the time. It was the 20th century entertainment uh, medium, but it had come into being during her lifetime. Her views were shared by some quite unusual people. Nigel Neal, who, you know, was created horror sci-fi yeah, TV. Yeah, this, and, really? <laughs> um, was very, very vociferous about how that was fine after nine o'clock at night for adults. Mm -hmm. But in his, in his phrase, you don't turn the big guns on the children. He was of her opinion. A lot of people, when she, she would sort of corral child psychologists, there was uh, a child psychologist who was a Doctor Who fan who was talking about how he used Doctor Who yeah. with kids who had psychological problems. His name now escapes me. I've got one of his books somewhere. So there were, yeah. you know, th th so there was this kind of debate, but a very, very sort of heated debate going on. What also what's fascinating about this time is throughout the 60s, there was an ethos coming from the Director General, Hugh Carlton Green, who's Graham Greene, the novelist brother, who was very, very permissive, laissez-faire in terms of um, what program makers should make, i.e. the people who got those positions, the BBC producers, directors, writers, were given their head to go away and make what they wanted to make. And there's another fascinating phrase of his, Hugh Green said, we are polite to Mrs. Whitehouse, but we do not let her into the building. <laughs> and that ethos you know, went from, through the 60s, comes into the 70s, and then there's a change of regime at the top. So Charles Curran becomes director general, who's far more right-wing, for want of a better phrase, far, far less permissive in terms of what he thinks a product should be, is more concerned, anxious about the moral majority, um, in inverted commas, uh, spearheaded by the likes of, of Mary Whitehouse. So throughout the 70s, Doctor Who, when we, Simon and I, became fans to start with, Ronnie Marsh was the head of Serials, who loved Doctor Who, massive fan of it, you know, thought it was a fantastic thing in, in the schedules and was very supportive of Barry Letts. Same with Bill Slater in the Hinchcliffe yeah. years. Then, you know, at this time, you've got, you, you've got, you, they get anxious about Mary Whitehouse at this time. There's a, there's a difference of ethos coming from the top. And it's then this Ian MacDonald, who, who takes over from Ronnie Marsh, I think, is also much more cautious. And it's he who moves Hinchcliffe in 77, after the White House answered about Deadly Assassin, the row about that. And Graham Williams is brought over from a series called Target, a police drama with Patrick Mower. Mm -hmm. Hinchcliffe is moved over to that. Williams is told that he's got to take out the horror. And he himself said, well, what's, what's left? So it's the first time in the history of Doctor Who from Verity Lambert through to Philip Hinchcliffe that any producer has been given a directive from above and told what to do. And it is quite remarkable because, as you say, Stephen, literally Hinchcliffe and Williams literally get swapped. Graham Williams had developed... Promoted sideways. 
Yeah. 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 Graham Williams had developed the series target. That's so it right. was his series and yeah. he had no desire to go on to Doctor Who. And no Philip desire Lee at all. Certainly yeah. had no desire to leave Doctor Who at that point. No. And so they were literally, there was no choice for either of them. They were literally switched over. Philip Hinchcliffe. I think uh, has always felt, certainly commentators at, at, at the time have sort of commented that really, to an extent, Philip Hinchcliffe was hung out to dry because mm. of the fact for the first time ever, the BBC didn't necessarily concur with, with uh, Mary Whitehouse over the deadly assassin, but they did apologise for it and they, and they publicly mm. said, on this occasion, we probably got it wrong. And that mm. was the first mm. admission to Mary Whitehouse, that she was right yeah. and that they were wrong. And of course, the person who was going to have to carry the can for that, bless him, was Philip Hinchcliffe. Um, and so they had no choice but to move him from Doctor Who. And we were we were robbed of the of the fourth Philip Hinchcliffe series, which yeah. I think would have been well, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, 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 well, it's interesting, isn't it? There's one of those parallel universe speculations. Yeah. What, what would the fourth Hinchcliffe um, se season have been like? It's interesting when he's interviewed about it, is very sort of vague about it. He said, oh, I, 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 but you know, I'd done three great years. Talons of Wang Chang was a great show to go out on what he what he calls the 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 Robert Holmes spectacular. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he yeah. said, you know, I, I I was happy to go on and do other things because he extraordinary career after Doctor Who. You know, yeah. uh, You know, all sorts of series. You know, Private Schultz is one that springs to mind um, uh, very shortly after with with, with Michael Elphick, etc. All sorts of things, and of course, Bob Holmes was leaving. Maybe they'd given us their best, and maybe that. I mean, often or you know, yeah. but what's great about people who leave quit when they're ahead? Of course, you know, it's it's like you know, uh, only two series of Faulty Towers, only two series of The Office, or whatever. You know, things that are things that are very it strong, is. and then you think. At least they didn't stick around and go, oh, what a shame. What a shame about the fourth Hinchcliffe season. And th th I think the most unfortunate person uh, at this time is probably Graham Williams, who was taken off the show that he was at. He developed and it was enthusiastic <laughs> about. Came on to Doctor Who that he didn't want to do. And he was told, you know, you've got to do Doctor Who, but without the horror. And he goes, well, well hang on. <laughs> what are we going to do? What's left? You know. Let's dial it back a little bit and yeah. yeah, focus a little on on the fourth Doctor as played by Tom Baker. As you say, he was three seasons deep into this long tenure himself at this time. But he'd won the role several several years ago, almost in the blink of an eye, really, out of nowhere. And just as the part of the Doctor transformed the life of this job in actor, Tom Baker would positively transform, evolve and in some ways revolutionise the Time Lord himself, wouldn't he? So it was a firm fixture of British television at that point for well over a decade, and it had regained popularity under John Pertwee. That's, I'd, say, I'd say that's fairly unarguable. Yes. So in replacing Pertwee, Pertwee had departed in, I would say controversy, but under a bit of a cloud. You know, some things were said, some things were not said. But there were high-ish stakes to handing over this role on that series that kicks off the BBC's crucial Saturday night schedule to this complete unknown, manifest as a, a gawkish bohemian explorer who was um, peeking from between the brim of a really floppy hat and over the impossibly long scarf that everybody recognises so much now, but at the time was just so, so different. He is probably the most alien 
doctor of them all even now mm-hmm. and yet he successfully walked the family audience the established family audience through 40 adventures across a re- record-breaking seven full seasons and the series became a phenomenal success that delighted millions each and every week what i was wondering is there is there anything left to say about the fourth doctor that isn't bleeding obvious or not being said <laughs> not being I mean, said umpteen times steve that, there's probably a lot more to be said by tom baker himself of course uh, who's, who's never short of, of things to say um about uh, himself or his era he's an extraordinary individual isn't he? he's an extraordinary mm. human being and uh you know it's an axiomatic statement but he's he is probably closer to the character of the doctor than any of the other actors who play yes. when he's interviewed you know he he never sees look what listen to just to, as a case in point and to and to try and um rein us in to be as relevant as possible to the story one of the fav- my favorite aspects of tom baker era dvds is if he's doing if he's involved in the commentaries you know because it's it's another show in itself often actors on commentaries aren't terribly interesting they can't remember much about the show they didn't have that much interest in it apart from their bit they talk about the weather they talk about how cold it was that day they talk about what they were and wearing Tom has given us lots of that shtick over the years hasn't he but throughout tom, the 90s but, he claimed not to remember anything well well tom the tom baker years that uh, that, that that 1991 or 92 <laughs> video this he, he yeah. remembers nothing about this nothing apart, at all. From, apart from how how um, attractive, he found Wanda Bentham. As they applied more and more gold makeup, the more and more attractive she became. And he runs rings around the other, often the other actors there who, who often don't understand, because he's just made of irony, isn't he, Tom Baker? He's, he's constantly sort of making jokes and subverting the whole situation. And that is quintessentially Tom Baker. And the doctor that he plays, I think we were talking about, you know, Pertwee and, and, and how. He'd never found himself, as he said before, Doctor Who. So, so there's there's a, a close alignment between the Pertwee Doctor and John Pertwee himself. But the dividing line between Tom Baker and the Fourth Doctor is the most blurred of all the Doctors. It's a wonderful thing, and it's a, it's it's a magnificent thing. Seven years was perhaps too long for anybody. There are there are times at which I think that that he's not as focused as others. But taken all in all, he is quintessentially Doctor Who and that look there are I think three icons in the history of Doctor Who instantly recognizable images for everybody you know in 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 society and culture one's the police box one's the Dalek and the other one's him in that costume and that's why I would I would sort of say that I think there is an argument to be had that we would not still have Doctor Who in the 21st century without him wasn't Tom Baker because as you say Stephen the Tom Baker doctor the fourth doctor is just still in everybody's mind it doesn't matter what has gone before what's gone since that image of the long scarf the floppy hat the the boggle eyes the 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 mad hair that still is 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 the image that everybody comes up with in their mind when they think of Doctor Who so whilst you're right Dan the John Pertwee years definitely had had I think consolidated the show in the minds of the public it was the tom baker years that took it literally stratospheric in the same way that with david tennant exactly the same as with david tennant years 
everybody was aware. If they weren't watching Doctor Who, you just simply couldn't avoid it. Everybody knew <laughs> of it. It was always in the public conscience. And so I think that possibly had an, a, any other actor, who knows, we don't know, say it's a sliding doors moment, but had somebody gone into that role after John Pertwee that didn't have the same qualities that Tom Baker did that really set it in the minds of the public as, as Doctor Who is an entity, I, I think it might have ended with that particular fourth Doctor, whoever that would have been. Um, it would have just drifted away. It wouldn't have died. It wouldn't have died terribly, I don't think. Um, but but I do think that there was there, Tom Baker being there at the time was the one thing that made Doctor Who what it is still today, which is which is a, 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 a quintessentially British uh, and a, a part a real a quintessential part of British culture. And it hadn't been that up until the point that Tom Baker took over, however popular it was. It was the Tom Baker years that made Doctor Who part of British culture. And that's why I think maybe the BBC wouldn't have revived it in 2005 had it not been that, that Tom had striven that success that then meant that Peter could take over. If you uh, look at interviews of people who were involved in 2003, 2004, around that time, but in particular Mal Young, who was executive producer of Doctor Who at that, at that time, above Russell T Davies, he found it almost unthinkable to bring back Doctor Who without Tom Baker. It needed some persuading from Russell T Davies not to attempt to reinstall this actor in that role. This was decades after he'd last played it. You know, it was that strong, that, that impactful an image and that lasting and longer shadow. In some ways, Tom Baker, even at the time, he seemed like the most unlikely of heroes. When you look back through his life, I mean, Tom, Thomas Stuart Baker was born in Liverpool in January of 1934, one of three children to a, a merchant seaman and a barmaid. And he had an incredibly unconventional life, practically from the beginning. He was supposed to be evacuated, wasn't he, along with all the other children during the war. But his mother just wouldn't let him go. She, she didn't want him to leave her side, so she kept him at home. So most of the other children were evacuated. And he spends his time going through, obviously, wartime was a very harsh very bleak and unforgiving domain, wasn't it? It, it was very, very um, exposing of, of everybody, let alone a child. And he would pick his way through through the rubble of bomb sites for, for old shells and, and casings for, for various things. That would not have been the average childhood. And, and from there, you know, we all know the stories about how he, for a time in his teens, he was a monk. <laughs> and then he went to work, to work in the Army Medical Corps during which time he, he, spends his, he spends his spare time uh, reading. He's a, a voracious reader. He was then, and I understand he still is now. And also performing in uh, amateur dramatics, which was how he ultimately ended up becoming an actor. But he worked multiple jobs for the best part of 20-odd years, didn't he? In between these acting roles, persevering and gradually sort of catching the eye of uh, just people, influential people who would latch onto him, so, such as Sir Laurence Olivier, who... who uh, petition for him to get a particular role, didn't he, with the National Theatre? Uh -huh. and, and I think that, that, that you know, that what, what we've got to remember with, 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 with Tom is that, as you say, Dan, he was a jobbing actor. He was, he was filling in all these jobs in the meantime. And so he could so easily have drifted away. Yeah. Um, 
and, and then, you know, I'm always left wondering with, with Tom. I, I think it's fair to say that Tom is one of the last living British eccentrics. I, I can think of very, very few left alive now, true British eccentrics. And you left, I'm always left wondering how much of that is genuinely originally at the core of Tom Baker and how much of it is, as you say, Dan, part of that sort of non-conventional upbringing as a child. Um, he, he's had some remarkable experiences through his life. How much is, of, is he a product of his life? Or how much is his life a product of him? I, I, I'm always left well, wondering Well, being a child that's not evacuated when everybody else is, for immediately that must have isolated him. Immediately. Yeah, absolutely. Of course it did. And so it cast him in a, in a completely different role. Um, and as I say, some of the other stuff that he was doing as, as a child, the, the things that he was involved with in, in, the, in the Catholic Church, uh, that, that, that um, he was sort of encouraged, if not sort of pushed into um, by his mother. Um, all of those things have sort of shaped him. And he's always said, he, one of his favourite stories that he always tells is how he began acting when he was very, very young, standing as a pallbearer at the side of, uh, at the side of graves, crying uh, to get paid. <laughs> uh, because because he, knew that, he knew that by, if, if he stood there uh, 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 snivelling, crying somebody there would think that he was he was upset by this the death of this poor person and so he'd get a sixpence um and and, and as his performance got better he got more and more money and that was sort of what started to get him into thinking about acting uh, um, see even though we're talking about it. tom baker at the moment rather than the fourth doctor this, I felt that when, for example, when we spoke about Pertwee, the Doctor was a, was very much a costume, Stephen, that he put on. You know, he, he fastened up the, the frilly shirt, tugged on the smoking jacket, and there was the Doctor. I don't think that the fourth Doctor and Tom Baker were, are, are so one and the same. It didn't really matter what he, what he was wearing. We are talking about one and the same individual, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, I, I think what's interesting about Tom Baker... Uh, everything's interesting about Tom Baker. Uh, but, you know, there are moments of great synchronicity, dare I say, serendipity, uh, to use a, a very Doctor Who word, in certain actors' lives, certain people's lives. But the, the opportunity that Tom Baker had to play Doctor Who was a wonderful one obviously for him and for us and for the audience and for the program. But one wonders, you know, if he hadn't got Doctor Who, what sort of a career could he possibly have had? He'd been, you know, he's the, he was the furthest away from being a star when he became Doctor Who of, of any of the actors who'd done it. You know, Hartnell had had a wonderful uh, film career. Um, Troughton was a, was, a, was a very, very successful um, character actor when he became Doctor Who and went back to being one afterwards. John Pertwee was a star of the radio, a vaudevillian, etc. Tom Baker was a jobbing actor, and there's the photograph of him working on a bloody building site and having had, uh, as he said, a flirtation with international, you know, filmmaking with Anthony and Cleopatra, not Anthony, but Nicholas and Alexandra yeah, playing, yeah, yeah. playing Rust Butin. Uh, various sort of B-movie horror films, films like The Mutations and Vault of Horror. He was very, very fortunate in that when this opportunity came along to go and meet Barry Letts, 
um, because Barry Letts kept sort of asking, offering it to people who couldn't find the right person, just in the, and they were they were sort of you know getting worried about time. He sends the letter to Bill Slater famously while he's on the building site, and by pure luck, the Golden Voyage of Sinbad is playing around the corner, so they can go around and check out if he can act, and they see there's this there's this bloke's got charisma, but you know. Barry Letts goes in and tells Elizabeth Sladen. She's never heard of him, of course, you know. So, but, and, but you often think, I often think, looking at Tom Baker in other parts, things he went on to afterwards, Percy was fortunate to get a second great sort of TV stardom role in Wurzel Gummidge. There wasn't another one that came along for Tom Baker. Tom Baker continued and continued, and long may he continue, to be Tom Baker, the fourth doctor. I often think when I see him in other parts, he's too big and bizarre to play human beings. <laughs> it and is the, extraordinary. It's a wonderful moment that the perfect part that he is probably more perfect for than any other actor came along for him to play. And I'm sort of very dubious that, that without Doctor Who, he could have found anything that was anywhere near as, 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 as right of fit as this. Um, it was just off. one of those wonderful moments of magic. You know. To come off a building site in the in the way that he did, and I've no idea whether it's because obviously when we when we recount these stories about Tom, any of these stories, you can you can uh, repeat them in a, in a, uh, a sentence. Maybe it happened over a period of weeks or even months. I don't know. But to to uh, to do that, to look at the reality of it, I think would drain away the the charm of it and that kind of rags to riches thing that we all find so irresistible. I mean, I, I like the fact that even though he we, he was working on a building site, he does appear to be working alongside uh, Roy Orbison and Orson Welles there <laughs> on the team. So even even that team was uh, was very very different. But yeah, it was directly after this. In fact, I understand that he accepted the role. He knew he was going to be Doctor Who whilst he was still clocking in with the boys That's on the correct. on the building site there but eventually he was revealed to the press escorted in by a cyberman and elizabeth sladen who was still in place as sarah jane smith and the rest i suppose was history history happening before before the nation's eyes there as this person who they'd never clapped eyes on before or at least not as themselves was presented to them as their new saturday night hero simon and of course, what we've got to remember with all of this is he didn't go down desperately well in that first season. When you look at some of the audience research reports for the first season, people were a little bit nervous about him. The fact they didn't know who this bloke was, that he was a little bit too manic, that, that, he, that they just didn't warm to him. Some of them did, but a lot of them didn't. They didn't warm to him. You know, we look back at it now and it's extraordinary to think that there is anybody out there that didn't just love Tom Baker from the very first second he appeared in Robot. But actually, there were people that were resistant to it and didn't warm to the performance at that point in time. Um, I remember so because, that. I re because yeah. people thought Pertwee had been there for a long time. Yeah. Well, he had in, in, a long time, in, yeah. in televisual terms, five years is, is a very, very long time. Mm. I, I remember the very first day that Robot was transmitted, and I was six, and um, I was being babysat that evening by by the girl around the corner. Have I told this story before to you? No. This is this is this and and my my babysitter had a very famous uncle <laughs> because uh, she was called Elizabeth Rossiter. Okay, now, can you work out who the uncle Just was? About. Right, round the corner was Joan Rossiter, who was the widow 
of Leonard Rossiter's brother, Leonard Rossiter, wow. who's famous for Rising Damp and and, uh, and uh, Reginald Perrin, etc. And his brother was a uh, an astronomer at Bidston Observatory who who died prematurely, left the the widow Joan and two daughters. Elizabeth was a teenager who used to come around and babysit for me, and she came round. And the first thing she said when she came through the door, she said, did you see that idiot playing Doctor Who tonight? I'm never watching that again, she said, you know, because for her, and this, this happens, of course, when anybody's cast as Doctor Who, isn't it? There's the, the outgoing Doctor is, is the, the Doctor that belongs to so many yes. people, and they'll never watch it again. But there was a, such a huge, very strong feeling against Tom Baker because he was so bizarrely different. Um, from John from John Pertwee, and of course in Robot, you don't get a sense of what he's going to be like actually, as 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 he as that that performance is is focused and made far more serious in those mm. early stories after after Robot. Terence Sticks has written him wild because he'd met Tom Baker and thought, well, I'll I'll write something like that very extraordinary, exuberant, flamboyant character, and then if, but the, you get into arc in space is a different doctor altogether and i think as that season goes through you see the ratings you know build very very quickly actually don't they you know um, yes and uh and uh oh and remarkably i mean if, i mean it's literally with the arc in space uh, the, the the ratings are beginning to yeah. which is only the second story the ratings yeah, yeah. are already beginning there i think you're up to about 14 million aren't we? 14 i think in episode two yeah which is yeah, which, which, yeah. which is the highest they'd ever of course you know this is what we're talking about the what how Tom takes the popularity of the show culturally into the stratosphere. Pertwee stories, eight, nine, rarely yeah. into 10 million. Yeah. From, you know, not long after he's, he's taken over, it's 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 million, you know, and um, whether we count City of Death and all that because of the ITV strike is another another question altogether. But however, throughout throughout the, the, the era until it's only the last series that season eighteen yes. which which has, has um lamentable figures for, for reasons that we don't need to have to discuss now. But no, it's it becomes a, a completely different phenomenon, doesn't it, on Tom Baker? Yes. Um and uh, and I think every anything you you said is correct and it's an interesting speculation that would we have to, would we have Doctor Who without the stratospheric success that it reached um, in his era? That that would it have lasted as long as it did that's in the seventies and eighties? Would it I, have got exactly to eighty nine? I don't think it would. Yeah. I don't think yeah, it yeah. would. No. It might have peed, it might have trundled along quite happily mm. with mm. again sort of seven, eight, nine million viewers. Um, mm. and it might have continued up, but I just don't think it would have become intrinsically linked in the British psyche uh, and within uh, and such an integral part of, of British culture if it hadn't been for Tom Baker. Because, let's make no bones about it, it's, it's with Tom Baker that the figure of the Doctor becomes a British icon. Yeah. The, the figure is not an icon up until that point. It's a, it's no. a fictional character that a lot of people know and love. But it, it is with Tom Baker that, that, that truly the, the character of the Doctor becomes iconic and an icon in every sense yeah, of yeah. the word. Yeah. He affected the audience and they affected him and he stays affected, I think regardless of how he claims to have forgotten about the show during the 90s, can't remember any of that. It's, it's not to be doubted that the effect that he had on people 
and that that was reciprocated, that that never left him. Here's a word from Tom Baker about some of that, about his connection with the character and, and what it did for him. You really kind of started to embody Doctor Who. People actually really believed that you were Who and you would walk around and, and children would see you and you were Doctor Who to them. Yeah, and, yeah, it, yeah. And, and it almost, I mean, I don't know if you ever felt in the public eye that kind of Doctor Who and Tom kind of started to kind of merge in any way. They did merge entirely. I was the man myself. And because I had such a, a tangled private life and suddenly it was better to be Doctor Who than to be Tom Baker. <laughs> As I was Doctor Who, people applauded everywhere. It was incredible, you know, to just go into an off-license and the guy would give me a standing ovation. <laughs> There'd only be him and me there. <laughs> and I took to it like a fish to water. It's no use my saying, you know, it just embarrassed me. It didn't, it absolutely delighted me, you know. <laughs> the, thing, the thing that I always find so remarkable about Tom Baker, when, when we look at him nowadays, that's what we see. We see this very ebullient, um, outgoing, yeah. very friendly guy that's really in love with the part. But I still remember so clearly uh, seeing him at um, Longleat in 1983 um, at the celebration. And he, he was nothing like you, you've just seen there. He was very... He, he almost look, looked broken by Doctor Who. It looked like it had broken him um, in that it was impossible to tell whether he was upset uh, that he'd left the show that he loved or whether he was glad to leave the show because it, because it had made him so unhappy. It was really, but I remember, as, uh, how old was I, about 15 in 1983, watching, watching him, as I say, at, at Longleat Celebration. And he really did not seem in love with the part at that point at all. Do you think it had become a burden or was I, his heart broken? I, I really, it's really, really difficult to tell. Um, but it was, it, he, there was definitely a feeling that he didn't want to be associated with the part at that point. And of course, that's why he didn't uh, do The Five Doctors. Um, and so it's remarkable. I think the change that has come around in later years where now he just embraces it so willingly and so lovingly and as I say so ebulliently um, none of that was present immediately following his uh, departure from the show he left very very much under a cloud it feels well I think in those days of course the concept of typecasting was was, was such a was such a strong factor in the way television was made and planned and if you'd been in a, in a television series but particularly with, with that, nobody has ever been, as we, the, all the ways in which we've been talking about him being the icon of Doctor Who. So the problems of typecasting must have been sort of monumentally larger yeah. than probably somebody else associated with, with another moderately successful show. Yeah. He thought, as he says at the end of the Tom Baker years thing, I thought the future was going to be golden. He said, I thought it was going to go from success to success to success. And it wasn't to be so and touchingly on that, he says, until perhaps this year, eleven years on, I think he must have just got medics. Yes. Probably was yeah. was that was, was, was a was a sort of moderate success that he had later on. But it was it's it's like having been in the Beatles, isn't it? And then yeah. you know what? Where do you go after that sort of stratospheric success? Everything's going to be a disappointment, particularly if actually largely it wasn't very much at all. He went to he, I think he went back to play Oscar Wilde at Chichester. Um, in a state, and, and he play. played Long John Silver in Treasure Hunt straight afterwards, I think, didn't he? And, and, and Treasure, and, Treasure Hunt, Treasure and, Island. 
and yeah, and, and little bits and pieces, you know, playing that that small part in 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 the second series of Blackadder mm. in the uh, in the early eighties, and you'd see him popping up in things. And I remember at the time feeling sort of oh, you know, how sad it was. It was. I was at Longley, but I had to. I was going on a French exchange on the Sunday. He only turned up on the Sunday. Yeah, uh, Longley. I was there on the first day, but I had to leave, so I didn't see him at Longley. But I did see him. I did see him at, at a convention in in um, sometime in the late eighties. There was some event he went to, and he was and, and it, it was there was that sense, and, and he was he was funny, but there was a sort of real acerbic bitterness to the yes. way in which he was telling anecdotes, not in that sort of exuberant and 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 in the way he enjoys his irony. It was it was really really quite sort of you know through gritted teeth. I mean, it was a very funny story told about the Graham Williams era, and I got the little somewhere I got to, I'll find the, the dictaphone with it, which is very funny. There's a different sort of humour mm. than the sort of humour that we. Yes, he's often he's often irreverent. He's often what would now would be called inappropriate. He's outrageous. Yeah, there, there, there was a sort of cynicism. That's right. Yeah, cynicism. Cynicism is a good word. It bit him hard that he'd well, gone from the greatest success imaginable to practically what felt like a void, probably. I well, also, I, you, you can't help wondering if, if maybe that last uh, season, season 18, with John Nathan Turner, did just bruise him too much because, because although they got on okay, I think that, that they both admitted that they sort of clashed as personalities during, during the time that Tom was on. And, and so you, I, I think that maybe Tom was just sort of a victim of his own success. He'd been so huge, by his own admission, he'd become very, very proprietorial about the role. And so to, to go from that, from feeling that he owned the role and he owned Doctor Who, to suddenly John Nathan Turner being somewhat sort of dismissive about it well you know if you want to go Tom that's fine you know you leave and yeah. suddenly now it was all just a little bit mm, what was it all worth what was it all for maybe he just felt a, 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 just a little disappointed by it all I don't know yeah well I mean you know the, it's a brutal business it always is and it's mm. it's 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 has chewed up and spat out so many people in so many yeah. different ways however big you think you are and and probably nobody felt as 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 big and as famous as as Tom Baker did in, at the height of it. And of course, he yeah. got just into, just within that sort of circuit of doing those seasons, he got used to getting his own way. Yes. Particularly as it, and, and, you know, once Philip Hinchcliffe had gone and all that, the, and Graham Williams, well, we could, we'll talk about the differences between the years, of course, but he, he, he got used to, it used to being, in effect, the Tom Baker show. And yes. then John Nathan Turner comes along with Chris Bidmead. And they're going, no, we don't want to do it like that anymore. And we want you to, <laughs> and we want you to say the lines that are written down. And we don't want you to be putting whatever the hell you like it or whatever jokes you like. And you're going to wear this costume, and you're going to wear those question marks, whether you like it or not, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Suddenly, playtime's he was, over. <laughs> he was, he was feeling, you know, straightjacketed. Now, I think, personally, aesthetically. That last season, there's a, a, some of my favourite stories, I and, agree. The, and the focus and the control that's brought to Tom in that in that is is greatly to the benefit of the performance. I but agree. it probably didn't bloody feel like that to him at the time. Pretty sure it didn't. You know, <laughs> I know a guy um, who often talks about the Tom Baker era with uh, with as much frustration as glee, 
Uh, he's a podcaster as well, and so I'm not going to take ownership of this. But he always says that because the Tom Baker era ran for so long, he was in the part so long, living with that role for so long, and, and vice versa, that we get three different Toms. And you never yes. really know which one you're going to get. So you either get Scary Tom, you get Goofy Tom, or you get Grumpy Tom. And, there's, uh, and they sort of rotate. But obviously, there's a lot more of the Grumpy towards the end. I, I think that's pretty accurate that throughout those seven years you see fleetings of grumpiness and fleetings of, of goofiness at either end and uh, it but it does form a almost a shape of its own simon oh undoubtedly i've always said this that there, that, that there is a huge graduation from 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 season 12 to season 18 you you see a completely different doctor and it does develop and i've always said of of, of all of the doctors we've ever had Tom's is the only character that has developed well that did develop and I always find it so strange that that Tom is the one who says that as an acting role there's very little you can do with it you can't develop it because of the role and I always it's so ironic because to say Tom's is the characterization of the doctor that does develop it's a completely different uh, doctor that we see in robot to the one we see in Legopolis and everything in between and and, and you do get very much a, a, a change from the sort of student, uh, the goofiness of the student, through, the, the, uh, as you say, the, the, the larking about the comedian, up until the very, very serious, weighty gravitas that we get in season 18, which I find utterly mesmerising to watch his performance in season 18. Yeah. Um, and I love the fact that, that we get such a completely different Doctor. from, And it's the only Doctor that you get. There is no other graduation in any of the other Doctors. What you see at the beginning, Colin Baker, of course, wanted to do it and didn't have the time to do it. Another time. No. Hearing you guys talk about this, obviously, as children, children of the 70s, and you, you lived and watched his entire era as it was going out. I didn't. I, I inherited Tom sort of halfway through. And so these were the earliest days, not just of my fandom, but of me watching the show. And for me, this is going to sound strange, and I think almost like heresy. But for me, the fourth Doctor, that figure of the fourth Doctor, it kind of hung like a spectre over the series itself, the series that I loved so much throughout the time that I personally was getting more into it, more obsessed with it, through the 1980s, people would continually tell me, remind me, Tom Baker, the fourth one, he was the best one. And, and it's not that I didn't believe them, more than it was of no use to me whatsoever to keep harping on about it. I could remember very hazily some of those stories, but I couldn't see them to go and find out if they were if they were right or not, or whether if that was received wisdom, because there were no repeats, there was no VHS. So it was, it was all academic. I was happy with what his successors were doing, up to the point that after a few years, I started to resent the fourth Doctor for a while. Him not turning up to the five Doctors was probably part of that. But each time I caught a clip of the fourth Doctor, the magic was all too apparent. And the way his character imprinted on a generation not just of kids uh, the parents too it was everybody and people living abroad outside of britain too it was undeniable so once those vhs tapes did start getting released and the fourth doctor became accessible to me those stories when i'd look at the list of what was coming next in tv zone or dwm when i saw a fourth doctor release listed for june or august or whatever that was a release that I could bank on because I, I was a completist. I bought them all, but I enjoyed some more than others, particularly on a first watch. There were so many flavours to 
to this era and it was firing on so many cylinders and all those versions of the doctor all the creatives that were involved i was captivated and i became auto aware that this was the doctor this this is just as he said day one the definitive article there was none quite like him because there was no one quite like tom baker it's probably that simple Stephen. uh yes and i have very very particular feelings about the different phases of uh, the tom baker era um and it's fascinating that we're going to be talking about um, a story from from season 15 as a child of pertwee if you like for want of a better phrase i had got used and addicted to doctor who being very scary or about jeopardy um and its priority its mission statement was about being very, very unnerving and eerie. Yes. And any, anything comedic was somehow there to support that element of the eerie and the strange and the dark. And for the first three years of Tom Baker's era, the Hinchcliffe years or the, the Holmes Cliffian years, uh, you know, to, to, to conflate the two, the producer and the, and the, and the script editor, that seemed to intensify for me, and I, it was something that I absolutely adored and craved. I, I just remember moments of the joy of being thrilled by yeah. particular cliffhangers, you know, the burning of the shoulders in Pyramids of Mars, you know. So many moments from, from, from those eras, right through to Tanja Wang Chang. There were literally it, hundreds in, of them, aren't there? Yeah, and it goes into Horror Thang Rock, and then we get invisible enemy of course at the time when you're when you're a child you don't know about changes of personnel you don't know what a producer is at that age unaware as an eight-year-old of the mary whitehouse problem etc an anecdotal personal story being at the school playing fields one day one afternoon and a lad called rob ramsey telling me that there was going to be a robot dog in doctor who <laughs> i remember hearing this and i thought he was winding me up because this sounded like an appalling idea to me. And then I checked and got home, and there indeed was, it was, a, was a newspaper article about the fact that they were going to introduce a robot dog into Doctor Who. And I opposed this, <laughs> and I didn't like it when it came into it. There was a change of tone, which, of course, we now know was because of the response to, 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 the, to the White House onslaught. Now, there's, there's a comedic tone which is new, that wouldn't have happened in the Hinchcliffe era. And so, that, so this is a way in which the, the programme was mutating, for better or worse, into something else with a complete difference of tone. This was something that I, at times, over the next three years, found enervating, and I missed the, the, the level of jeopardy and, and the, the level of suspense. I can't wait to hear what you guys have got to say about this story. Before we get into it, though, this is the bit where I've got to remind you, if you'd like to do some real-time travelling of your own, each and every edition of this show, past, present and future, is just a tap or two away on the device of your choice, but only if you know where to look. We're really proud of the playlist full of reviews, previews, interviews, geek outs and deep dives that we've got with all our regular panellists and some pretty awesome guests. We know there's something for every fan over at Type 
podbean.com. More about that a little later on, as well as that interlude where we will make contact with the matrix of all knowledge that we call the Fandom Podcast Network for a word about all the other treats for the ears on offer on all the other shows over there. So yes, check behind the sofa, everybody, even if there's not a sofa in the room, check behind the sofa, behind the door, all those little places where something may loom with its tendrils out of the shadows at you because it's time for an appointment with fear for the Doctor and Leela and us are facing the fearsome image of the Fendel. Yes, classic Doctor Who at the height of its powers, some would say, season 15, broadcast between 29th of September to the 19th of November 1977, starring Tom Baker as the Doctor and Louise Jameson as Leela. She hadn't been with the show for very long at that point, but I think she was already rather a legend of her own. She'd made a, a big impact in a short period of time. But what's that story Louise Jameson always says? You know, if you put somebody in leathers, whack them on after the football results... What do you expect to happen? <laughs> yeah, this, this story is a curious one. As you say, there's a very precise balance of elements here. But before we touch on all of that with a deep dive review, Simon's going to remind us what it's all about, just in case you haven't seen it for a little while. A sonic time scan draws the TARDIS to fetch priory on Earth, where a group of scientists are intent on analysing an impossibly ancient skull. But... When their technology combines with the evil of Fetchwood, it brings to life a terror that has lain hidden for 12 million years, a nightmare from the Time Lord's past threatening to devour all life in the galaxy. Bloody hell. Is it too late to turn back? Can we we pick something else? (laughs) This one is a four-part story written by uh, by Chris Boucher and directed by George Spence and Foster. So a curious pairing. Chris Boucher was very much a new broom. He'd created the character of Leela, hadn't he, for the face of evil. So this wasn't his first Doctor Who story. But in some ways, it's very different from, from what he'd done before. And yet his way of building characters is all over this, I think. Undoubtedly, this is his third script for, for, for Doctor Who. Um, and of course, his most celebrated is The Robots of Death. That's the one everybody remembers, um, probably closely followed by The Face of Evil. And this is the one that, uh, that, that, that Chris Boucher wrote that, that, that sort of people forget about, bizarrely. And of course, following on from, from writing Image of the Fendal, he went immediately on to, to, to be working on a script editor on Blake Seven. And so that's why, for example, when rewrites needed to be done on, on Image of the Fendal, um, he, he wasn't around to do them. They had to be done by the Doctor Who script edit, editor, which at that point was Anthony Reid, because he was just coming in and just taking over from, um, from, from Robert Holmes. And so Boucher was not around to do the rewrites on this story. He was, he was far too busy on Blake Seven. And that's why we never get another Boucher script on Doctor Who, which is just a tragic shame, because I think his three scripts of Doctor Who are some of the best they're right up there for me, um, but we were we were them and, and, and Blake Seven won Chris Boucher instead. It's interesting that the the Blake Seven factor, of course, in in the um, the history of Doctor Who at this time in the mid seventies. Now, Graham Williams has got a lot of difficulties on his plate. He's been told what to do by the powers that be for the first time. He's going to take the horror out of it, um, but also, of course, Doctor Who 
is is being drained of personnel in many ways by this new show. Yeah. David Maloney, probably the strongest um, Doctor Who director of the Hinchcliffe era, goes to produce Blake yeah. Seven. And so you lose um, David Maloney as producer. Um, a lot of other of the great producers, sorry, directors of, of the previous era, there's a very quite a tight group of, of directors who, who were directing again and again, Michael Bryant being one of them, because he goes off, doesn't do another Doctor Who, does a lot of Blake Seven after this. Douglas Camfield, one of the greatest Doctor Who directors, the last one he did was Seeds of Doom. People like Lenny Main doesn't do another one. Um, Rodney Bennis, who, who only did, uh, did, did three Tom Baker ones, doesn't do another one. Um, Paddy Russell's last one is Horror of Fang Rock, the very first um, Williams one. The only director that straddles the Hinchcliffe and Williams uh, eras is Pennant Roberts, of course, who'd done, who'd done um, Face of Evil for Hinchcliffe the year before and, and then, then goes on to do, to do a few for, for Williams. So there's, there's almost, you know, another factor is uh, there's a whole new set of personnel, a new set of directors. George Spence and Doctor directs this, has never done Doctor Who before. Invisible Enemy is directed by um, uh, Derek Goodwin, who was largely known for situation comedies and, and, and theatre, and turned down Doctor Who three times. Probably the most sort of um, highly regarded director of this era, who does City of Death and Andrews of Tara, um, to name the two most successful ones, um, Michael Hayes has to be persuaded to come and do it so i think there's you know it's wonderful i remember i i, I was um very very uh, attached to to blake Seven at the time but i think that was another element that made making doctor who more difficult than it had been in the hinchcliffe era. and of course also there's the, the way the economy is going at the time williams faced far greater strictures on budgets than than had happened uh, in the previous era so it's 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 a it's a difficult time to become producer of doctor who this was the very very last story ever to be commissioned by robert holmes um that's who right just been so key obviously yeah. to the philip hinchcliffe years to the yeah. success of the philip hinchcliffe years that's um, right they co-scripted it as him and correct and anthony i was going to say if, if badger yeah. was moving over then uh, and you've got anthony reed and robert holmes in the mix too could explain yeah. why why this story feels the way it does but it does feel very very much to me like it, it, as does horror of fang rock um it feels very much like it could have been a philip hinchcliffe story um yeah absolutely be, but as a result of that, that's why we have to remember that so much of, of the Hinchcliffe years, the style of them are down to Robert Holmes. Um, mm. Nothing against Philip Hinchcliffe, yeah, brilliant, yeah. brilliant producer. He let, he let Robert Holmes run with the material, and that's why it's so good. Um, but you can see that, that, that Robert Holmes' fingerprints are all over this and horror of fan rock. Hinchcliffe said that the, the gothic horror influence was Holmes, it was, was yes. Robert Holmes. And and he said he said my, 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 I was more interested in the sci-fi stuff or the or you know, making sure it was sent suspenseful. But it's Robert Holmes who delivers that macabre yeah. um, quality, doesn't it? And this this is as you say absolutely the horror of Fang Rock and this story said that they're the, they're the last sort of remnants, aren't they, yes. of the of the Holmes Cliffian era? You know, yeah. and they do feel that neither of them, of course, have got 
K9 is is decommissioned, having been taken on board. <laughs> this is probably this had been written and commissioned before. Correct. Become a become a become a factor. So so he, and he doesn't even have a line, does he? Yeah. He nods his head at the end. But yes, the the flavour of this is so very much um, of the of the previous era. It's it's quite extraordinary. It's got Doctor Who uh, stalwarts in the cast as well. We've got so this is the supporting cast as well as as well as Louise Jameson and Tom Baker. We've got Wanda Ventham playing Thea Ransom. Martha Taylor is played by Daphne Hurd. Dennis Lill is there as Dr. Fendelman with Edward Evans as Ted Moss. Uh, Ted Moss, I thought he was the guy who used to do the Everest adverts. Remember the double no, that's, blazers? That's Ted Moult. He came to a very, very sad end, Ted Moult. It's a similar end to the, the end that Max Steyl comes to in this story. But anyway, carry on. Sorry. Oh, I thought you were going to say that yeah. Michael Hutchins came to. I thought, oh, I, could, I, never, <laughs> I never pictured that in a million years. Scott yeah. Fredericks, who'd been in Day of the Daleks, plays Maximili Maximilian Steele. We've got I, yeah Edward uh, Arthur as Adam Colby. With Derek Martin, lovely Derek Martin, who'd been on the show as a kind of low-level stuntman for a little while, hadn't he? Went on to be yeah. in EastEnders for years and years as Charlie Slater. He's in here for his only Doctor Who proper acting credits as, as David Mitchell. What a great cast in this story. There's not that many of them, but everybody who's here, they're all functioning parts of a whole. And obviously Wanda Ventham in particular, Simon, they're somebody who is absolutely steeped in genre television from, from UFO and The Saint and all, all those all those shows and a the couple prisoner. of horror movies, yeah. that kind of thing. The Prisoner, she was in The Prisoner. And uh, yes, she's uh, very much a presence in this, even though she doesn't really say a great deal. She, she's very good at looking very, very concerned. <laughs> she, and let's not forget that Daphne Heard, bless her, went on to play uh, Mrs. Pooh in uh, To the Man of Born. That was where that was where her fame came into uh, into its own, and um, was played with <laughs> Devere's mother in uh, yes. Devere's mother. Yeah. Into the Man of <laughs> She gets all the best lines in this, <laughs> and all the best moments. Right in lots of director camera, right in her face shots. And yeah, you're quite right to me. She'd always been Mrs. Pooh. Yeah, Daphne Heard. She'd been a movie star. Decades yep. before, in various films in her younger days. But there she is, as yeah, this hatchet-faced old crone who talks of the old ways constantly, Simon. It's a wonderful I mean, I think, I, And I think one of the reasons why Image of the Fendal works so well for me is because we get other stories that, that, that might be a similar thing about scientists in a big house or whatever it might be. You look at something like, I don't know, the Ice Warriors, to take, it, to take an example. The difference is, yeah. in some of those stories, there are loads and loads of characters, and, you, and you've constantly got people wandering down corridors looking intently at clipboards and, and, and doing absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> Whereas, in Image of the Fendal, it's a really tight cast. There is no, there's no extraneous waste within the cast. Everybody is there for a reason. Everybody plays a role. It's a little. It always reminds me a little bit like sort of Cluedo. It's it's like it's like Cluedo on on television, um, in that they're all there yeah. for a specific reason to play a specific part. And so, just as as Boucher did with Robots of Death. They all have very, very specific characterizations and very specific reasons to be there to move the plot forward. There's no wasted character. But he writes them so deftly that you don't realize that actually he's sort of mm. in effect playing Cluedo and he's just moving all the pieces around and giving them certain characterizations because one of them has to be Professor Plum and one of them has to be Colonel Mustard. Um, <laughs> and, and, but you're not aware of that. He does well, I suppose, Simon, to the naked eye, and I was for for this whenever I watched this, it's Dennis Lill 
playing Dr. Yes. Fendelman. He's got the sinister name. He's got the sinister facial hair. He's yeah. got the scowl and the and the accent. You know, you sh- in in old television, you didn't trust people with accents like that. And so you you have him down as the wrong one. Don't yes. you? <laughs> and he's not he's, the villain. No. He's not. He's not the. He's not the most evil person there. He's, he's not very nice, is he? <laughs> no, the pretty, uh, the pretty boys are the are the uh, are the nasty ones. Well, well I think, I think uh, it's, Max Stell uh, is 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 the is the satanist, isn't he? Adam yeah. Colby's pretty pretty innocent. Yeah. He might be a little bit irritating, Adam, but uh, but uh, but he's he's uh, he's an innocent amongst them, as is then, as is Wanderer, of course. But certainly, yeah. Fendelman is is really there very much. Um, he he, you know, he's a, he's a he's a very very wealthy scientist. That's why he's he, that's why this whole setup is there. And so he's he's that typically sort of British misguided character. You know, in, yeah. in typical British uh, sort of dramas, he's just the misguided character, isn't he? He's 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 got good intentions, um, but maybe not the best possible ways of going about doing it. The, it's it's a more self-centered way of doing it but he's not truly a villain but but it, it, it's the way Boucher sort of blindsides us somewhat and misleads us I just think he's very very good at writing those kind of scenarios that, that are sort of twisty turny that you're not quite certain where you I, I don't think any of us in that in the first sort of half of episode one of the image of the Fendal it's impossible to work out where we will be by the end of episode four, yeah. he's very good at taking us on a on a very very twisty turny journey that we hadn't seen coming. Um, it's not yeah. there's nothing predictable about Image of the Fendal, nothing at all. I think and that's um, one of the things I love. One one of the um, most arresting and and powerful episodes of my childhood was was episode one. It's interesting how you yeah. know. Certain episodes stand out in your mind, um, and and it's again whenever I watch it, it's almost like I enjoy that first episode more every time I watch it because yeah. it gets more and more like my memory of it. Yes, and it's and it and it's an astonishing, astonishingly minimalistic episode, isn't it? In terms of yeah. there's almost no incidental music. No, it's Dick 30 Mills. seconds. There's 30 seconds. It's, it's under that. Mother Tyler, isn't it? In in, in the kitchen when when she's oh, yes. later or sooner, later or later. But aside from that, it's just Dick Mills with the with the the, the sound effects, yeah. that extraordinary sound that he's got with the glowing skill, the beautiful way Wanda Ventham's face is mixed with the skull, and it and my very specific memory. Of this is there were, there were some kids who were. We were supposed to be going to a fireworks display, and I was delaying the party by saying no. We and 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 I wouldn't come out until this episode was over because I was absolutely hypnotised well, by that first episode. And the thing know. that's odd about that first episode is the Doctor and Leela don't come into it. Are in it at all? Minutes. No. You know, there's no, there's they're not in it for the first five minutes of it, and and the the the, the cliffhanger to the end of episode one is just one of the most terrifying things. I still maintain anybody to, 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 to sit through that without being terrified. Yep. It's just beautifully done. Um, and if you haven't seen the end of episode one, I'm not going to spoil it for you. Um, but it's just it, ju- it just sort of sweeps. Well, it just sweeps up, doesn't it? It's, it's not uh, just one. It's not just one cliffhanger, either. Correct. It? That's that's, that's so, it's, so, it's, so it's it's firing in a double-barreled way. If that isn't literally, it's, 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 it's <laughs> yeah. beautiful and it's yeah, beautifully yeah. orchestrated. Yeah. It's one of those oh, beautiful yeah. moments yeah. 
where they where yet again Boucher has got all of the players in all yeah. of the right places at yeah. all of the right yeah. time to just yeah. absolutely kick the, the 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 stool from under you as a viewer. Um, and it's just it's, it's beautifully done as opposed as opposed to the stool that's kicked from under Tom at the uh, beginning of episode three, which is uh, uh-huh. a resolution to another cliffhanger. But um, no, this it's one of those episodes where all the elements are blending together. Aren't yes, they? Just, you know the performances. Wanda Ventham's face, you know, is just is so beautiful in repose. The way that that that's fading with the with the skull. The uh, Elmer Cossey, who's the lighting camera camera lit um, Genesis of the Daleks. That that's the the, the escape up the uh, uh, up the rocket, the Thal rocket. It's the same lighting camera is just superbly recreating that sort of hammer horror. You yeah. know, mist it mist in the wood um, atmospheric. Yeah. This uh, feels more like world. a Hammer horror movie or one yes. of their TV shows than uh, any other Doctor Who. I think. I, I think. I think undoubtedly this is this is Doctor Who does Hammer horror. I've always thought that you know, in another world, you would put Christopher Lee in the role of Maximilian Stahl and you put Peter Cushing in the role of uh, Fendelman and you would have a hammer and you take the Doctor and Leader out of it completely and you've got a hammer horror film. We, we yeah. go right in from that into uh, to this scene where the TARDIS materialises and there's all those cows around them and it's not quite like anything we've seen in the show for a while at that point. Yeah. It's it, it's confounding expectations, that's for sure. Especially after we've just come off that the extraordinary first five minutes of the show, which, as I say, does feel very much like a Hammer horror film or a Nigel Neal uh, play. It's uh, very Stone Tape, isn't it? You know, that's the, just the, what I was going to say. Um, always reminds me which of I Stone which tape. I which I rewatched, inspired by going to talk about this. Yeah, truth be um, told, it is virtually exactly the same story as Quatermass and the Pit. Um, yeah. In that, yes, it's to do with aliens influencing the development of, of of humankind, and it obviously does it in a different way. But it still does it in a very, very Nigel Neal way. Yeah, um, you know, this could have been written by Nigel Neal, and that's not to take anything away from Boucher at all. This, he writes the script beautifully, but it is very much Nigel Neal in style. Um, but the characters are 100% Boucher, aren't they? They're yes. similar to the characters that, that were in the Robots of Death, and, and a lot like the characters that he would um, not create, but certainly certainly build on, on Blake 7 and Star Cops, come to think of it. But, but, you know, as I say, bearing in mind that the stone tape was also Nigel Neal, you to take the Doctor and Leela out of this, you genuinely would have a Christmas Eve uh, Nigel Neal television play of, of 90 minutes. Um, it, again, it, it's the computer banks, but within the priory setting. It's, the, it's that sort of wonderful... They did it the same, similar with the Omega Factor with, with Louis Jameson in the late 70s. It, it, uh, there's something that's wonderfully British about seeing computer banks within an oldie world setting. <laughs> it just works, and it, and it is creepy. The Priory, it, with the Edwardian. Yeah, yeah, mm, it, it, mm, it, it, it's mm. just, it, it just works as a concept. It works very, very well. Um, yeah. and, and as a conceit, it, it just sort of, it sets your juices going. It, you can't help but be drawn into something that's, it's quite madcap, you know, the, the truth of the image of the Fendal is it's quite out there. I, I would say of all of the Boucher scripts, it's the most out there. Certainly the whole business about the, trying to work out what the influence of the Fendal has been on humankind and where the skull came from and how we got there and what the Fendal... It's really difficult. to They throw loads of stuff at you, but nothing is spoon-fed to you as a viewer. 
you have to listen to all of the all of the um, all of the rhetoric that the characters come out with, and then try and work out for yourself what it all actually means. There are no easy answers at the end of Into the Pendal. Even the stuff that the Doctor comes out with as an explanation, he's all by his own admission, sort of hypothesis. Do you think, Simon, that that was how, how it always was, or do you think that the original scripts would have been a little more explicit in that, but that it may have been too strong, and so I... to suggest and to speak in a more hushed tone about it was a way of speaking to maybe older children parents without scaring the life out of the under tens too much i think i think it's possible i've always kind of thought that maybe it's a bit of the anthony reed influence that that, that he wanted to it, it, i've always thought maybe those speeches and there are quite a few speeches that kind of explain what the skull is but without being too explicit about it i've always wondered whether that's more more anthony reed than, than chris boucher because as you say dan it's the characterization yeah. and, the, and the scenarios that are boucher-esque um, whereas, whereas the, 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 almost the justification of what the story is about. I wonder whether Boucher had left it even more vague um, and hadn't really been too specific about any of this stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's um, interesting, isn't it, that, yeah, that something that, that rings a bell here is um, the writer um, Christopher Bailey talking yes. about what it, what it was like working in the regime of Eric Sayward. And he said, you know, I always used to say um, with Eric Sayward, you know, if I wanted to tell the mysterious story, say of the, you know, to use an obvious example of the Little Red Riding Hood myth of the, the grandmother turning into the wolf, mm -hmm. Eric would want to stop the action and explain exactly how and why the grandmother turned into the wolf. Yes, and he said, but he said, but the thing, the thing, the explanation is always thinner than the thing itself. And I think perhaps here we may have, you know, script editorial stuff yes. at work, make, making it duller or more expositional. Well, another story, <laughs> well, another thing that I remember about um, working with um, Roy Holder, who we know from Kaiser Andrazani, whose wife was Pauline Cox. She did two stories as a makeup artist. This was one. She had very strong memories of the difference between Tom Baker, between do, doing this and the other one. She's a very intelligent woman, a very observant woman. But her mem strong memories of this were Tom Baker getting very, very annoyed and vociferous about how much bloody exposition there was. In and I've got a feeling she might have been talking about the later episodes. And she seemed to remember him being on the TARDIS set. The, the wild goose chase to the fifth planet springs to mind yes. there as an exposition-y sort of oh, yeah. bit that sort of actually doesn't take us anywhere, you know. And, he, um, and, uh, and Tom does have big speeches, doesn't he? He has big speeches big about... Big speech. And even in episode four, you think, oh, mate, we're still getting exposition speeches when you really want to be winding this up, you know, when, he, when he's creating the, again, the final implode-controlled implosion. Again, maybe they felt, when putting it together that some of the exposition was better delivered from the safety to those younger children. I'm thinking back to Mary Whitehouse and the changes that have been made editorial to the show. To, to explain that within the safety of the TARDIS was perhaps easier for younger viewers to... to it's, funny, is, it's funny, isn't it, thinking about the whole White House onslaught and the aftermath of it, but here we have extraordinarily horrific things. You know, that the, all we don't yeah. see Fendelman being shot, but being shot by shell. Then the suicide, you know, yeah. of style, and 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 the doctor handing him the gun to to effect his own demise. 
you know, it's almost like nobody had paid any attention at all to Mary Whitehouse, you know. Yeah. Um, when you when you look at the elements that 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 that, uh, that are taking place, how it's how very well very place. clever what they do with suggestion, not just in the ways the Doctor Who always does, Simon, with music and lighting and, and and sensitive special effects, but as you say, Stephen, with with dialogue and with uh, the exchange between really great actors. There's another another uh, um, story that's coming to mind. It was an interview with Chris Boucher in the Doctor Who magazine. Long, long time. must have been the 90s. And he talked about he only ever once went to a read-through. And he never went to a read-through ever again. Because he said it was it was an antechamber to hell. Which is the read-through of him as a defender. Because of the way Tom Baker, Tom Baker was being so disparaging about his work. And he said, and that's right, it was, it said it was awful because I decided I was never going to be impressed by an actor. I'm impressed by sportsmen, he said. But he said, you couldn't help but be impressed by Tom Baker. When I first met him in the BBC bar, impressed by his height, impressed by his intellect, impressed by his sense of humour. And he said, I wanted him to like me. And so so the, the read-through of Image of the Fendal, he said, was, it was a really sort of awful, growing, growing experience. And he determined never to do it again. Of course, he never had to do it again on Doctor Who because that was his last uh, last show, and he went off to to script edit um, script edit Blake Seven. I don't think he would have had the same problems with Gareth Thomas. I I uh, I had <laughs> looking guess. looking across at Louise Jameson as Leela here. Yeah. I feel that this story, and obviously I, I watched this in isolation. I haven't watched the entire series, but I felt that this is a uh, a turning point for the character, a softening of her character as well. I think she seems, in some respects, in some respects she seems to have grown up a little. And in other ways, she seems more childlike than ever. She does a lot of smiling in this. There's a lot of a lot of in-jokes, a lot of warmth between her and the Doctor, which certainly wasn't there at the beginning, that sort of gradually bled through. And obviously she looks, her makeup has changed quite a lot. She's in a, a new dress, which the Doctor notices. <laughs> notices at one part during the story. So is that is that just me Am I picking up on that? Is that real or have I just imagined it? Well, that that dress is 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 a lot shorter than the previous one, that's for sure. Yeah, that, was, one that, that... that apparently was an edict from Graham Williams that he wanted the, 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 the costume even sexier than the first well, one. Extra thigh. In, in that first TARDIS scene, when they're appropriately enough re-erecting the, um, the, uh, the hat stand... You can see a lot of Louise in that shot, that particular shot. I think you can see more of Louise. <laughs> Later on on the commentary, Tom's very funny. She, she says, she says, I've still got that costume. And Tom's in a very small drawer. <laughs> <laughs> um, he also, he's also very admiring of her thighs when they come into, into, the, into the field. But uh, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, when you think that she, she gets sort of implausibly married off at the end of this season. You know, Hinchcliffe's idea for the character was that that she was going to become more and more educated, wasn't she? And and that you know, in Talons of Wing Chang, we see her in it in Victorian costume. I think, well, certainly, I think she she develops very much in this story. In that she does seem to to develop by the time we've got into Image of the Fendal, and this is kind of the bang in the middle of her run as Leela. So it makes sense that at this point she's getting into her stride. Um, and the, the, the relationship seems to be thawing somewhat between between Tom and uh, and Louise. Again, 
we didn't know at the time that there was any friction there whatsoever. But now looking back, um, it, it, it seems that, um, that, that that Tom is is warming to the character and is probably beginning to realise at this point that actually Louise Jameson is a pretty damn fine actress um, and, and is really bringing something very, very special to this role because I've always felt that... that, that Leela and Louise Jameson's performance is almost um, underappreciated. Um, that's yeah. not to say she isn't loved, but 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 I think it's a truly, truly extraordinary performance that she gives because she acts so alien. She brings so much to the role. Um, she's she's just so deft at bringing that childlike quality to it, but also a fierce intelligence. So, so there's never a feeling that she's childlike in that she's not very bright. It's just that she's not educated. Um, and I just think she treads the line so, so well uh, and delivers an extraordinary performance. And I think by this point in the run, she absolutely is. She, she's, she's racing at this point. I think she's on a roll. Um, and of course, so is Tom. Truth be told, you know, what, what, we, what we're looking at with Image of the Fendar is a story right bang in the middle of Tom's entire career as Doctor Who. So really, he is now really into his stride. He's, he's really on, on a run at this point. Um, and it's before we begin to move into the very, very silly excesses of season 16 and then particularly season 17. So he hasn't, although Graham Williams has come along and Tom has always said that Graham Williams was, if anything, too lax with him. He let him get away with too much because he was um, he was far more easygoing than Philip Hinchcliffe had been. But oh, right. at this point in the Graham William years, of course, we're right at the very, very beginning of it. And so Tom isn't spreading his wings to that extent at this point. Um, his wings are still clipped. Uh, and it's only, as I say, in six, season 16 and really, truth be told, season 17 that he, that he absolutely takes advantage noticed, of that. I noticed that as well, Simon. I think in, in parts of this, we see a lot of... We see a lot of Goofy with a small G, Tom, I think, in this. Lots of quieter moments where he says things that are quite bizarre with a glint in his eye and a flash of the teeth. And yet there are moments as well where he scares the living hell out of you, particularly when he's... Uh, that scene with the skull where he just idles his way across the study and he's there talking to the skull and then you, 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 you're kind of willing him not to touch it but yet touch it at the same time. Well, and when he does, you get this fantastic face that Tom pulls. He says so little again. Yeah. Wonderful, understated, brilliant. Well, well, again, I think this goes back to what Stephen was saying earlier and certainly at this point in Doctor Who, I am still very, very much, as a child, I was still very much terrified by Doctor Who um, in that I was still tuning in to be scared. And my heart, uh, I, I can still remember so clearly in these Tom Baker episodes, my heart would literally beat faster. I remember feeling so nervous watching these episodes, particularly as in the last sort of eight, nine, ten minutes as you knew it was starting to build up to a cliffhanger. And this is what they did so well in these seven in the in the Tom Baker years. I, I think cliffhangers have never been better than they were in the oh, Tom yeah. Baker years because 
Some of them drop the ball, but but a heck of a lot of them don't. They really hit the mark square in the middle of the target. And you'd um, start to get you'd start to get anxious, wouldn't you? As you as you anxiety. knew that, uh, that's and, and because and being actually a, a, a sort of afraid of the cliffhanger yes. thing itself. That's and exactly course, and it. A, and another thing that's that delightful <laughs> when when you hear um, Hinchcliffe on the on the comment on the it's on the commentary of. Um, episode one of Pyramids of Mars, where he said, I was there at the mix making sure that the sound engineer had got the volume whacked up as far as it would go. So the needles were going, going, we can't take it any higher because it's going to distort people's set. He wanted that cliffhanger yes. to come <laughs> screaming in yes. to, to have that final, you know, but, bring the buggers back next week by scaring the absolute shit out of them. The but you are right. It was it was the feeling of anxiety building up. Oh, you the, could feel the, it. It's, oh, it's going to any minute. I'm going to hear that noise. Oh, God. And because, and because they delivered on it every time, as I say, episode one and episode <laughs> two cliffhangers in this story are just as good Absolutely. as they ever get. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's the it is the build up to it. It's the way they build up to it. This, of course, is why one of the reasons why I, I, I regret the demise of the 20, well, the 30 minute, uh, 25 minute episode, because it did require the scriptwriter and the director to build up the tension to a certain point that you only get with a, with a, with a sort of a 30 minute. It episode. made Doctor Who a kind of art form in itself, didn't it? Absolutely. Well, yeah, and the cliffhanger was an art form in itself as well. Yeah, I think, you know, you yeah, know, yeah. And, and, and it didn't really matter. <laughs> Hinchcliffe used to say it didn't really matter how we paid it. I was only got them next back next week. You know, sometimes yes. it would it would be it would be a cop out. But that and wasn't it, the point. And the, know, truth the, point it is, the truth of it is, episode one, the cliffhanger to that, when they pay that off in episode two, it is a bit of a cop-out yeah, yeah, because yeah, they yeah. re-edit it to work. Yeah. To, we're still they not going to spoil the end of episode one if you haven't watched it yet. But, it, <laughs> but they do re-edit it slightly to make you work. But does it matter? Doesn't matter. Of course, course it doesn't, it doesn't no, matter. No, we're no. watching Some... quality programming. That's what matters. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Some of the imagery from this story is particularly episode four. Uh, Almost some of the most iconic of the Tom Baker era, the figure of Wanda Ventham as as Thea, when she's transformed into this shimmering golden figure with the uh, the big white eyes. I'm never quite sure whether they're supposed to be actual eyes or whether we're supposed to know that they're painted on, that they're represented of something in the way that a bindi is, for example, in Hindu culture. I, I'm never I, quite I thought sure they about were that. her as uh, when I was eight or nine, wherever it was. I thought they were her eyes. Down, so I can't remember. Do you know, Stephen? I simply can't remember what I, I, I don't. I don't think I thought they were painted on. Well, put it like this: it hers. didn't bother me at the time. I, I clearly wasn't bothered. I was clearly caught up in the drama of it, and so it didn't worry me whether they were her eyes or not. I mean, likewise, it, it didn't really worry me with the Fendal that 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 it, you know people have criticised well, well the Fendal, the Fendali, and all of them. They criticised them as being somewhat sort of hokey. Um, it, it, again, it never worried me. I've always thought they were a pretty damn good design. It doesn't worry me. I know that they got they got criticism at the time for sort of looking, you know, during pre-production for looking somewhat phallic. Um, really, I hadn't noticed before they <laughs> before they put the hood on it, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. So they, they added <laughs> added adornments to make it look less obscene. But but, but um, again, no, as a kid, fine. did it worry me? Of course no, it didn't. Fine. It was just damn good drama that terrified the pants off me. I'm quite happy, thank you very much. You know, I think we can we can tend to get too caught up in some of these details now as we look back on it. But at the time, watching it, 
it, for me, it was absolutely riveting. And it worked for, for all its, in effect, yet yeah, it's hokiness. There is a degree of, um, of sort of cheesiness about it, but, 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 but it but worked. There's so, there's so often is, when we, you know, one of my very favorite stories is Seeds of Doom, but there, there are certain manifestations of the yes. chronoid, which, 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 you know, ridiculous, do, which do not impress me, you know, yeah, laughable. that's, that's Doctor Who, you know, yeah. and and um, and he's you know, part he's... of the charm. But isn't it, you know, again going back to Hammer, isn't, for example, that part of the charm of Hammer? There's some terrible, yeah. terrible hokey effects in Hammer yeah. films. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. matter. We, yeah. you know, we you, we have to remember the context within which these were watched. They were certainly never meant to be rewatched. When we first get that proper look at a Fenderline. It's it, it's at that moment as you were describing this, Stephen, where we're brought to a cliffhanger. Half of us did have our fingers over our eyes or we were cowering from behind the surface so we weren't really sure what we were seeing and that would be the image that would that we'd be left with for a whole week and it, it wasn't it wasn't seen like that and i was surprised watching this again i was surprised yeah. after seeing so many of the of the photographs in magazines of these seemingly ridiculous looking sort of almost muppet style monsters or something out of the little shop of horrors how effective they actually did look on screen and mm. i think they're pretty pretty decent designs with really interesting designs and and uh, particularly when they're flanking flanking everybody flanking no laughing at the back wanda ventham there as, <laughs> when she's in that transformed state i think it's really great iconic stuff talking about no laughing at the back that th that third episode uh, cliffhanger don't look too closely at Jeffrey Hinscliffe because he quite clearly is having difficulty keeping a straight face on the left. <laughs> and I, I, know, I know an actor when he's on the verge of laughter. <laughs> and uh, it's, that, it's that just the way he's desperately trying to sort of keep those cheek muscles in the right place. <laughs> so anyway. But it, but it is, you know, episode four, I think is just a, a fantastic episode from the point of view of all of it. As I say, you can't tell the beginning of episode one where we will end up with episode four. And that's yeah. the beauty of a good Doctor Who story is that it, it's taken you to places you didn't expect to go. And all of the story strands do all come together at the end of episode, well, it, you know, in episode four. And it has a payoff. It has, um, for want of a better word, a climax. It does have, it does have, a, this story does have a payoff um, in that you feel you have, you have it feels worthy that the, the first episodes particularly that first five minutes that set out the store for Image of the Fendar so clearly as being horror film stuff. It could easily have, have just been a complete disappointment by the time we got to episode four. We could have felt cheated and, oh, is that all it was? But it really does pay off. That final episode, I think, does pull out all the stops. It feels um, like everything's being unleashed, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a crazy mad episode. And it's getting more claustrophobic as well. Mm-hmm. And it, and it it simply is building to 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 a major end of of, of the of the whole denouement is it's big it's explosive um, in every sense of the word it, it it works they they pull it off and as I say we could have felt so cheated so many times you you, you feel cheated at the end of a story that ah. Oh, I don't know. I mean, even, I, I would even level that complaint at the robots of death. Even that feels, oh, really? Uh, well, I, I was thinking, I was thinking watching this, how in many respects, people talk about the demons, the Pertwee story a lot, lot more. But in, in many ways, I think this does something similar in a, in a slightly more effective way. I would agree. I, well, I wouldn't, I, comparisons are odious and lead to hatred. 
but I because I love <laughs> I love both versions. I suppose they're different stories. I think I think I think yeah. Demon Demons is is it is its own great homage to Dennis Wheatley Hammer horror films. You know, and this is something slightly more uh, modern, I suppose, and it it feels like it belongs to well, the demons sort of belongs to an older tradition. This feels like it belongs to a 70s drama like the stone tape yeah, through another that, filter that, that yeah. sort of slightly later nigel neal than the, the quatermass stuff and, and it, so it, it belongs to something that's very much of its time but i like i i, I love both stories it's, you know, it's, it's almost it's almost sort of hammer house of horror i mean i know this is sort of three years before hammer house of horror but it's almost it, it, this could have been something in the hammer house of horror which yeah. of course anthony reed went on to um, to work on that's so, right so, that's right yeah yeah you know it's, it's it isn't a million miles away to sort of um, no and, and it's related to things like omega factor as well that you mentioned yeah. earlier on as well of yeah. course which has louise in it um, yeah. a, cu- a couple of years down the line it feels there's a flavor isn't there of stuff in the late 70s that this is this this sort of belongs to and don't you think it just is very very british that you just it's not mm. remotely for example american this this no, kind no. of horror is oh, just no. not american well it's the old it's the the old houses isn't it that particular sort mm. of gothicism which is about victorian gothic architecture yeah. as much as it's about anything and you yeah. get you get you know sci-fi horror well there's the computers and put them in the victorian house and you get that very particular english hybrid you know, but in many ways, I suppose it's something that the X Files tried to do in America and did successfully. It's it, I would say that it's, the, the X Files owes yeah. a yeah. debt to the yeah. to that kind of this kind of very British seventies mm. horror sci fi kind of mm. stuff that we were getting a lot of that we don't we never it, it doesn't exist anymore. We don't get it at all anymore. It's it's simply gone and forgotten. Absolutely. Sadly, this was uh, filmed. The the location stuff was filmed uh, at Stargrove Manor again. I suppose even that, now in, in New Doctor Who, 30, 40 years on, we see that returns to locations all the time. Every other episode, some of them, I think we see them all over again. But with this, I think it's forgivable. I think one priory is much the same as another. It just sets the scene perfectly, doesn't it? Well, I think not only is it forgivable, I think, truth be told, it's it's totally disguised. I, I, it was years before I even realised that it was the same. Only when you know... Pyramids of Mars, as well as some of us do, having watched it many, many, many times over many, 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 many years, <laughs> there's one shot through the Fetch Priory gates where you yeah. can see, oh, I, uh, right, oh, I can spot it now. I can see that's where Tom go ducks down under the window. But that's oh. that's just one shot. Would you? You certainly wouldn't have noticed it. Yeah. Good God, no, 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 no. Of no, course no. you I, wouldn't. I noticed it. I used to see it yesterday for the first time. I'm not convinced I would ever have noticed if it hadn't, if it wasn't that I knew that it was the same, yeah, it was exactly. the same location. Exactly. But the other thing, of course, is so much of, of image of the Fendal is set at night, um, and and so Stargrove just looks so. Look where, you know, yeah. Really Whereas a lot of pyramids time. was set during the day, wasn't it, in those grounds? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's Largely. why that, that's yeah. obviously going to contribute to the fact that that, that, that they look different. Um, but the sets are so you know so beautifully designed as well. Oh uh, yeah, that the corridor, the 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 whole corridor is as solid as and realistic as, as any set has ever been in Doctor, isn't it? Absolutely beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. I and love the, the I love yeah. the cellar. When you think yeah, how big, yeah, how, how big that is, it, it looks practically cavernous by classic Doctor Who's terms, it does, and the, it? the the way the pentagram lights up as well. 
Mm. It, it has an epic feel about it. That's what you know. That that episode four has an epic feel about it that actually belies the fact that that that, that as you say, Stephen, Graham Williams was was working under ridiculous constrictions at this point with regards to to the budget. You know, financial restrictions were just enormous on him, and yet you you never get the feeling of not with this uh, one. You uh, don't. By the time we get into Invasion of the Time at the very end of the season, okay completely different kettle of fish but at this yeah. point they're spending the money and it is all there to see on screen and that's again one of the joys of this story this for me is a, is very much a middle ground story along with things like the mask of mandragora which i i like i've always enjoyed watching and yet i seldom go out of my way to to sit down and watch because i think if i'm if i'm in the mood for this kind of story i will often reach for pyramids of mars for example and in, in light of that, now having watched it again for the purposes of, of this, for our diamond season of reviews, I feel that I have, over the years, really overlooked Image of the Fendel. Everybody does. And I don't know why. I, I, I've, I've always wondered, is it simply because the Robots of Death by the same writer is just held up in such high esteem that we just literally forgot that he actually wrote a stonking great story in Image of the Fendal as well. I don't know, I don't, or is it that, is it just because it's it's Graham Williams by this point and we're kind of falling out of love with the show a bit because it's no longer Philip Hinchcliffe? I don't know. I've never understood why Image of the Fendal is overlooked. Even Horror of Fang Rock gets more acclaim, a lot more acclaim, and don't get me wrong, I love Horror of Fang Rock as well, but I love it no more than Image of the Fendal. I would put them both. I think. I think strangely, though, I think t- until it was suggested that that I come and talk about this one, of of all the stories in season fifteen, the one I would automatically put on is Horror of Fang Rock. Of course. And this is and this is the the one I'm the the one I'm next likely to put on. And yet, I don't, strangely, again. And why don't and, you? And I don't know. And this time I watched it. And I don't know, actually. And, 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 I, and actually, I watched it several times this week in preparation. And each time I watched it, the more <laughs> I liked it, you know. Bizarre, so, isn't it? So it's very, it, it's very odd, you know. Is it because it's buried in the middle of the season? Everybody's kind of more in the habit, Stephen, of streaming entire seasons. And I think if you've got favourite instalments or standout instalments that tend to get a lot more attention, even if you're doing a a binge watch of everything, you might sort of skip through some of them or watch some of them sort of, not half-heartedly, but sort of half-watching because your favourite one's up next or your favourite one's just been on because you've got to keep the momentum going and you may not take the time to properly take it in. I think it's probably to do with what I said, you know, very early on on in this discussion, that there's there's a flavour that's changed about Doctor Who, you know, epitomised by, I suppose, emblematised by K9, and there's that sort of Tom Baker's characterisation changing, and I suppose that that affects my likelihood to go, oh, I bet... That I that it's it's started to change and it's probably affected image of the Fendal in ways Maybe. that you know, um, and it largely, largely hasn't. And the, and there are the particular moments in this story where, where where Tom Baker is as 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 strong as he is in in the Hinchcliffe era stories, and does that extraordinary sort of focusing his performance down, like oh, sorry, like down the eye of a needle. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I mean, it's, yeah. and, and, and at one point he literally looks straight down the, the camera, doesn't he? He delivers a line straight down the camera and breaks the breaks the fourth wall pretty much. 
towards so the confidently. end. So yes, 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 yes. I think yes, it's yes, because, yes. as you were saying, Simon, I, I, if it is in the dead centre of his era, yes. he's, he knows every every string to the That's instrument true. that he's playing and every note of it, and he still he still enjoys it enough that he can have have fun with it creatively. He doesn't seem frustrated or hampered by it in any way. Knows the character inside out. And uh, he knows that but people out there love him doing what he does and, and, and trust him and, and that he's, I would say he's carrying the show, but I suppose he was aware of the transition as well. And it's a, it is a very, very nuanced performance in the way that some stories with Tom Baker in are not as nuanced. More than I remembered. Straight down the line, whereas this is very nuanced. There are lots of there are lots of highs, lots of lows. I love the way you know, although he complains about some of the uh, the, the um, exposition that he had to sort of regurgitate out. I love the way he does it. He's Tom Baker is brilliant at just sort of splurging out exposition. Particularly in this one, he do, he does it so he does it with such such style. Yeah. I believe it all. When he when he was in the mood to deliver it. Um, nobody, we were talking about skills that different doctors have. We were talking about Pertwee's ability to communicate fear and jeopardy with a, with a look. I don't think there's another doctor who can, who can handle exposition as, as I agree. fascinatingly and, 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 as, and as engagingly. Yes. And so that it doesn't actually sound like exposition, that, it's, that, it, that it's, it sounds like sort of magical poetry. It's, you know? it, 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 it is amazing how so often with drama and, and films as well, you, you're just, you know, you feel just, just clunky. You feel like you're being hit mm. over the head because mm. they'll just drop in this really clunky line of exposition. And yet somehow Tom has, as you say, this way of turning it almost into poetry. But I think it is also partly down to Chris Boucher's lines. He just has a knack for writing beautiful, deft dialogue. That, that that just sort of trips off the tongue. Yeah. As, as Harrison Ford sort of famously said with regards to Star Wars, you know, you can write this crap, but you sure as hell can't say it. When he was criticising George Lucas's dialogue, that's not something that you can level at Chris Boucher. The, the lines no. that he comes out with are believable, genuine lines. They're, 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 they're precise and concise and economical. They say what needs to be said in an interesting way. And there's a particular case in point here. I, I had this um, story. I, I was I was cassette taping them off the telly. I remember quite, it well. Quite yeah. quite frequently um, by 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 this time of season fifteen. And there's a particular um, piece of of Chris Boucher writing and Tom and it's 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 exposition. It's about the time fisher, mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful example of the way Tom would go from this sort of speedy off-handed um sort of piece of piece of yes. uh of of, of technical, away almost. technical ex, ex, uh, yeah, exposition and then suddenly he'd focus the performance down the eye of that dark tom baker somber gloomy yeah. um you know eye of that needle yeah. and it yes. suddenly becomes absolutely compelling and and you know in that what I, you know, always always term as uh, Holmes' Cliffian world of the dark, somber Tom that was a million miles away from being being flippant, and and it's it's uh, it's it's that that scene in the cottage with with the Tylers, and and uh, and he sort of and the speed of his delivery as well in the first bit 
where he says, well, telepathy and precognition are normal in anyone who's childhood with spending a time fisher like the one in the woods. And um, and uh, Hinscliff comes in with, uh, he's as bad as she is. What's a time fisher? And that's when he suddenly focuses into that dark tomb. It's a weakness in the fabric of space and time. Every haunted place has one, doesn't it? That's why they're haunted. It's a time distortion. This one must be very large. Large enough to have affected the place names around here. Like Fetchborough. Fetch. An apparition. Hmm? And she says, Oh, do we know so much? <laughs> and, and the payoff is, I read a lot, which is brilliant. <laughs> and, you've got, and you've got all brilliant. the toms there, haven't you? You've got the speed of delivery, yeah. the throwing away the exhibition, the darkness, and then that comedy payoff at the end. <laughs> I read a lot. That was you know, a standout and scene. And it's perfect. It's perfect. Talk oh, about, yeah. Talk about reading a lot. Yeah, this, there it uh... is. I've got, my, I've got my copy here. There it is. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Be told, I mean, I do think this is one of the weaker Terence Dix books because by this point he's he's just churning them out every 109 pages. Pages, same as the robots of death, you know. Sadly, that th those books could have been and should have been so good about the width of a wafer of, of an after eight mints. The, the robots of death, <laughs> isn't it? Talking about people who came back to Doctor Who time and time again, uh, Wanda Ventham, she's she's one of them. So here she was as Thea Ransom, a, a really sort of stripped back performance from her, as I say, looking all concerned and bobbed in her white coat. But she'd been in Doctor Who before in the Faceless Ones, and she'd be yeah. back again for time and the Rani, where she yeah. played Faroon the Balloon. She had a terrible time making time of the Rani, I, I know, but I thought she was great in that. Not, she was as great in not as bad a time as I had watching it at the time, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really like Wanda Ventham. I think she's a wonderful actress. Seen her in lots of things over the years. And she couldn't help but come back again for more. Dennis Lil, too. He was back in The Awakening. Uh, Sir yeah. George Hutchinson, uh, favourite character of mine. I, I love that story. Oh, I didn't pick him was... for the same guy. He's great in that, just as he's, he's in this, Simon. He's brilliant in The Awakening. I love the whole story of The Awakening. We could do, Can we please do a whole episode on The Awakening oh, at some point? Happily. I, I think it could... We, it's, yeah, it's more sort of demonic churches and crypts. Yeah, and it is. We're back there, there we go again. And of course, Dennis Little and Wanda Ventham were reunited, weren't they? Very famously in Only Fools and Horses for several years. They played Cassandra's the parents. parents. Cassandra. Right. Yeah, and I think people would have would have definitely have sent me messages had I not mentioned this. And I, I always get a kick out of seeing them back together in Fools and Horses, one of my very, very favourite uh, favourite shows. And they're both still with us as well, still acting yeah. too, from what I can see. Uh, Wanda is 87 and Dennis is 81. I, I love seeing them in anything, either of them. They just are those kind of actors, aren't they? That, that, that yeah, they're a joy, they're always a joy to watch. It doesn't matter what they're in, it doesn't matter what part they're playing, they're just a joy to watch. And well, he becomes, he becomes a, he's a regular in, in Survivors around about this time, isn't he? Either 76 or 77, time. yeah, around about the same time. Mm -hmm. Although he's unrecognisable from Fendelman because he's 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 got a he's got a piece on hair piece on. He's not immediately instantly recognisable. He hasn't got the kind of face. I don't think no. he's instantly recognisable. Tom's very mischievous when he when he opens his mouth for the first time on the commentary. Tom, he says he never could do Cockney. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Dennis and Wanda, they they were back, but uh, strangely, the cows they they never came back to the show. Uh... The owl's very good in Granny Tyler's uh, cottage. There's there's a wonderful oh, yeah. performance by that owl that's that's not at all bothered <laughs> by louise jameson and, and jeffrey hinsliff wielding uh firearms about adding to the uh 
the gothic the gothic atmosphere of the scene it's brilliant pentagrams and and wildlife there is so much more to this story than you think mm. all in the corners all in the margins as well as that really really strong story that runs takes us all the all the way through through those great cliffhangers with those fantastic characters there's so much to enjoy in this and we'll be back with more in a couple of minutes because this is that moment where we have to go and make contact with that matrix of all knowledge and hear from kev about all the other shows across the fandom podcast network where they're all having great conversations almost as great as this one so take it all in right now make a note of what could be your next favorite well second favorite podcast Stephen, simon and myself we'll be back here in a couple of minutes for more for our all important scores for image of the fendel don't go away Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Here are the other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. Culture Clash, where we discuss the latest in entertainment and pop culture. Blood of Kings, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theater, we celebrate our favorite movies. And Time Warp, our Fandom Flashback show discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie, TV, and pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Hair Metal Podcast. We cover the rock metal music of the 80s and early 90s. Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast discussing the time-traveling Doctor Who universe. Lethal Mullet, an action film podcast covering the 80s, 90s, and beyond. Also, check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, our Star Wars podcast. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast with a deep dive into the final frontier. The Fandom Show. Our Fandom Podcast Network live YouTube show discussing the hottest topics in fandom. The True Believers MCU Podcast discussing the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universe. Union Federation, our Star Trek and the Orville show. And we're proud to welcome the BQN Network to the Fandom Podcast Network. Please visit our friends on the BQN Network, a Star Trek Universe podcast that also includes your favorite topics, movies, history, superheroes, and more. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on YouTube. The Fandom Podcast Network is also on all major podcast platforms. The Fandom Podcast Network audio master feed is on Podbean at fpnet.podbean.com. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. There we go from spooking you out to teasing and tantalizing you as ever. When we can even clothe you too if you head over to tpublic.com. That's where you'll find merch to match all of those shows, including Type 40. Search for the Fandom Podcast Network. There'll be a store full of all the team colors for all of the podcasts on everything from T-shirts to phone cases and tapestries and all the rest of it. Seeing is believing. Treat yourself treat your other selves. All goes to support the Fandom Podcast Network into the bargain. So everybody wins i'm back here with simon horton and stephen noonan and we've we've chilled ourselves to the very core haven't we reviewing image of the fendel that classic doctor who story from all the way back in 1977 starring tom baker and louise jameson but here we are back together to get to the real core of the matter and decide how we're going to score this story if we can the better stories they're often hardest to come to some sort of to settle on some sort of score for 
don't want to give oh. everything five, do you? Yeah, I know, but it's difficult because stories that I love, I really, really love. And so <laughs> ah, does this rank up alongside something like The Caves of Androzani or The Robots of Death or Earthshock that I would give five to? I maybe felt certain aspects of the writing in this one, that the motivation of Style being the scientist who's the... He was the Satanist. I've never, I, perhaps I didn't quite buy it. I felt, I felt that Wanda Ventham, who's the, um, the, the, our identification figure sort of, sort of, sort of kind of disappears into Fendaldom without us sort I of. I think there are, I mean, there are a few loose mm. ends in the story. The one yeah. thing that still really, really drives me up the wall is how on earth the Doctor manages to get out of the storeroom in episode two. It just what happens there is it shoddy writing is it shoddy well, direction is it's it inferred direction? it's inferred that somebody lets him out but who but who they never say they never Rani, say it just Rani Tyler who knows out. no I don't know, I know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's but like I think... no it's it's like Jack Nicholson getting out of the um the the, the, the storeroom in the shining in the, in the shining isn't it it's the but, same but, thing it's but, the storeroom but that, again that's that's kind of wonderfully spooky but this yeah. is just sort of gratuitously one bound isn't it yeah it's um, just I, I honestly think it is shoddy writing it's either shoddy writing or shoddy script editing somebody just slipped up they just missed oh hold on we haven't quite clarified that one i think it is an oversight rather than uh, there anything. are lots of deleted scenes and trimmed scenes over on the on the dvd release to uh, uh, check I out i haven't those, so i haven't watched them yet no i haven't Maybe, it maybe could it could well do so yeah i think you i think you're trying to avoid the issue gentlemen because i'm i can't leave it any longer they want to know <laughs> and so do i how many pentagrams out of five do you give image of the fendel who should i go to first stephen noonan <laughs> i'm going to give it four pentagrams out of five i think there aren't many stories i i, I would feel sort of loath to give anything five because nothing's ever perfect um, but certainly on this revisit, and it's been quite a while since I've revisited, revisited Image of the Fendal, I was, I think, more impressed than I've ever been by it. I was reminded of how wonderful I thought episode one was and, 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 and largely episode two, etc. Um, and I was, I was less concerned by the, you know, the wild goose chase. I think that's, that's that, the, the trip to the, fifth planet that doesn't really lead anywhere i think that used to irritate me and the fact that there's a hell of a lot of exposition going on into the fourth episode and some of the tonal elements of it i was just more impressed by it than i've been before so i get i i give it a, a hearty four this time definitely mm, curious how about you simon Horn? how many how many pentagrams out of five do you give image of the fennel well, I think because I said a few minutes ago, I would give something like the Talons of Wing Chiang, the Robots of Death, Earthshot, Caves of Androzani. I'd give those a square five very, very happily. So as a result, I think I would concur with Stephen. I think I would also give it a very, very healthy four. I must be honest. If, if I was allowed to give it four and a half, I would give it four and a half. But but if we're not allowing well, half points... Are you allowed half? Everybody else, I've got to be honest, everybody else I ever asked to rate these stories out of five always chips in with a, with a half. So you may as well. Right, well in that case, I'm, go I'm going with a four and a half just because I think... Um, I, I think it stands quite 
highly above your average Doctor Who story. Um, it's not within the realms of sort of the robots of death, talents of Wen Chang in my mind, etc. But I think it's very, very close. Um, and a lot of it is it's just down to the sheer atmosphere of it. It's the lighting, it's the direction, it's the lines as well. It's it's just Chris Boucher's dialogue is beautiful. One of my favourite lines in, in Doctor Who of all time is when uh, Adam Colby says, what are you exactly? Some sort of wandering Armageddon peddler. You know, it's just... It's, <laughs> It's beautiful. It's beautiful dialogue. I love it. What is it? The doctor says you must have been sent by providence, and uh, Ted Moss says the no, I was sent by the council to put the virgins. <laughs> you know, it's just it's beautiful stuff. So, so the dialogue alone really lifts it for me. So, a, a very very healthy four and a half. I love this story. Mm. What about you, Dan? Just like when we got together last time to talk about Death of the Daleks. I hadn't seen this one in a very long time. Not quite as long as Death of the Daleks, where it had been 20-odd years. But it had been a while, certainly over a decade. And I'd never looked at it in quite this light. Really really soaked it in. Took my time with it. I think the last time I watched it, I was doing the entire entirety of the season. And I'm happy to say that this time, I was absolutely engrossed by this. And I noticed so many things that I had overlooked before, or I've simply refined my taste, I don't know what it is, but for me this was almost like getting brand new classic Doctor Who. It wasn't until after I'd watched it, and this is why I've asked so many questions really about about it in context to the time, to the National Viewers and Listeners Association, the change of personnel, the evolution of, of Tom's characterization. Because it was only after I'd watched this sitting and sort of mulling over some of it, that I realised how little we'd actually seen the, the guy who takes his own life. We don't see him do that. We don't see many of the transformations or, or the, the deaths in the way that we had done in earlier seasons under Hinchcliffe. And, it's, and yet while I was watching it, I didn't notice. I'd become completely seduced by it. And I was taken, I was taken to that place... The, the sense of jeopardy, the sense of, of scale, of the stakes, the production values gradually building and characters that I, I either really, really liked or I was interested in. That's not always a given. Sometimes you can see quite through some, of, some characters that are there uh, as um, almost as if they're parts of a machine. You, know, you, you can see all their all their uh, sharp edges, you know, where their gears are. Not so, not so with this. I, I wanted to, if not, if I didn't want to know more about them, I wanted to hear more, more from them. I, I, I thought the cast was absolutely fantastic. So it's a, my response to this this time, in, in deep into adulthood now, is a testimony to the grasp of the production everybody had. Maybe because of that feeling of not that everything was against them, but knowing that the couple of knives had been sharpened for the show and that they'd got to keep it right on track, putting the audience first. There's, as I said earlier on, there's that a perfect blend in many respects of the goofiness that I enjoy about Doctor Who with all that atmosphere and with, all, with the threat and the macabre and the hammer. And it's the perfect example in a lot of respects of this brand of, of Doctor Who story. It helps that Tom is in that sweetest of spots with the character and I really responded. And I'd forgotten as well about the links between the, the Fendeline 
and the Time Lords. I'm a sucker for all that mythology when it yeah, just pops up here and there. And because in the classic show they did it so seldom, when they did do it, it, it felt like an echo of yes. something really ancient. So And, 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 and important, and important. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, because it was so infrequent. It, yeah. Yeah, it had a weight to it that it, that it, it doesn't now. Mm. And so I think this is a very, very strong story that I've drastically reassessed. And I'm going to give it four out of five as well. Wow. Really I'm enjoyed to... it. But, yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because this is, this is the kind of the beginning of things that became so commonplace. And you, we've only had Deadly Assassin the year before. Yes which introduces us to Timeless Society for the first time, the world of Gallifrey. And and now we're starting to get, before it's got tired, they're starting to talk about the Time Lords more frequently. We've got the, you know, Time Lord mythology invoked here later in the yeah. season, because we, we, we have the sequel to Deadly Assassin, for better or worse. So that's, that's a discussion for another day. But it's interesting, isn't it, that, that, that all those things that we all take for granted are quite new at that time they, they certainly felt new to me as, as a child at the time that, that the discussion of time lord history was exciting because there hadn't been a lot of it prior to this and, and, and yeah as I say but the year before we'd gone to Gallifrey for the very first time Gallifrey's only named of course in the time warrior isn't it so, so, yeah, so the, the, the mystery of, of, of the doctor's history is crystallising and being referred to far more frequently for the first time but it hasn't got, you know, we're not, we haven't had too much of it yet. Well, well, I think, I think the other thing that sort of follows on from that is that, is that certainly in, you know, in 21st century Doctor Who, it's very, very overblown. Mm. This story, if you would, because of, because of the, 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 the weight behind this story that at the end of the day, it, it's, it's the end of everything, you know, if the Fendal get, gets loose, it's, it, you know, it's the end, it, they're going to, it's going to devour the entire galaxy. That's that's big weighty stuff. This is epic stuff. So now, if you were to do it now, it would be enormous and it would be hugely overblown. Mm. And what Murray Gold would be banging away, wouldn't it? Oh, he would. And, be and Murray's I, golden showers all over it. Yeah. Yeah. What I love about this is this is Doctor Who. It's very very best. It's taking a huge, way 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 bigger than the actual production story. A massive, epic story, and it's telling it in that. Yes, it's telling yeah. it in just a couple of yeah. rooms yeah, yeah. and a little and a, a little corner of a wood, and that's all you've got, and in half a dozen characters, and that's what Doctor Who does so brilliantly, and that's why yeah. I love it so much. Yeah, in, in comparison with something how it would be done nowadays. Yes, it it's, it's very much has kinship with with uh, Pyramids of Mars two years before. Absolutely. Not only because you've got the same. You said the same Mick Jagger's house, but but that but that a few characters in a Victorian Gothic mansion where the whole world is at stake, the whole universe is at stake, and, and, that, and that 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 wonderful sort of paradox is yeah. beautiful, isn't it? And that's Between, what Doctor Who the does small the and the infinite. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the ratings for this steadily built over the entire four weeks that it was on. People couldn't get enough of this. So it started at 6.7 million and uh, part four, 9.4 million people watching. So word, the spell was working. Word was getting around. And those children who are desperately hoping that they weren't going to soften this show 
were were flocking flocking to it to see to see more and i can't say i'm surprised i remember watching this when i was a child very very uh, vaguely remember this one just moments of it mostly the wood panel corridors i think mm -hmm. I, I would have been petrified by the cliffhanger to episode three but I, I do remember this and not all of the stories from this time had that effect i can't remember was, for this, example, was, this, Under was this when it was going out dan that you, you, yeah. you yeah yeah so being a little kid and telling i was one on the telly. Yeah. tiny yeah, yeah yeah so if it stayed with me even just a few images from when i was that little they were getting it right, I think, because I don't think it ever kept me awake at night. Obviously, results may vary. I can accept that. Uh, but And whilst I do, as I said at the top of the show, I do think Mary Whitehouse had her heart in the right place. This is an example of, yet again, Doctor Who taking a situation that had been foisted upon it, demands that had been asked of it, and still managing to spin a kind of gold. Yes. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm very impressed with this. So proud to be a fan of this show when I can watch an episode like this that's 45 years old, get so much out of it, and I would happily recommend this to pretty much anybody. We, we talked a moment ago about the Target book. That came in May 1979, so people, readers would not have long to wait. And not so much for the VHS tape. That took a little longer. came out on VHS in 1993. As with all Tom Baker stories, I counted down the days until this was uh, was out and uh, then of course we had uh, the dvd are uh, in uh, two, when was the dvd 2009 this came out on dvd in great britain so again a, a bit of a wait the this again this this story does get kind of overlooked because there are no returning bad guys it's not a, a great big extravagant story of any kind i do notice that this is it's a similar sort of story and yeah so i again this this um the vhs tape in particular you know, I, I remember buying that but i think the vhs the the dvd when those were coming out coming out at quite a rate of knots it was a case of i'd already double dipped on these so i just bought them accepted that i was paying for these all over again so i don't quite remember like buying from them a shop that i probably got it from play.com or if Amazon was around them from somewhere like that. It's not like going in and buying the VHS tape, is it, Steve? I mean, you, you counted down the weeks until oh, these God. things well, were released. Well, because often we were seeing them for the first time since they'd been on. Certainly, yes. with, with, with Image of the Fendal when when that came out, the VHS, that was the first opportunity to see the whole thing. The only, I think, the only bit of it I'd seen was a bit on the Tom Baker years between between its transmission and and because uh, it was never repeated. The two. Invisible Enemy and Sunmakers were the two repeats from um, from, from yeah. this season that that summer. So, and I'd never seen it at a convention or anything. So, yeah, they were so exciting when when you you'd finally get to to get to see the, to, to the story after all all those years. Um, and I and but when the DVDs came along, I I couldn't wait to to to, to hear if it was Tom on the commentary. That was another good reason with when the when when the DVDs came out. I couldn't wait to hear what sort of what hijinks he'd get up to, and he delivers on this one as a particularly, particularly amusing performance, as he as he runs rings around the others and and and, and uh, stymies them all with his irony. So often he'll make some preposterous remark, and one of them, like poor old Edward Arthur, was it really? You know, taking him seriously and, and not realizing <laughs> that he's joking. He's so, talking yeah. absolute rubbish. Absolute. As, as only Tom can do. Thomas Cobblers, yes, yeah, but. Um, <laughs> But no, um, one day we'll have the season 15 Blu-ray, won't we? And, Indeed uh, we will. And I wonder what, what, uh, 
what treasures that will hold in store for us, and if there's anything anything new to be found out about about uh, I th- one of the frustrating things about Chris Boucher is I've never, you know, he's he's on the Robots of Death DVDs. He does a commentary with Hinchcliffe yeah. on that. Um, but he's rare, apart from that interview with him in, in the monthly or the magazine or whatever it was at the time, um, I've never heard him talk a lot about Image of the Thundar. Um, no. Or seen, seen seen him seen him or heard him be interviewed. About he was him. sparing in the interviews that he gave, yeah. wasn't he? Throughout throughout he, his life, he did yeah. very he did very little. He's a, he's a man of few words. I remember seeing him at a convention yeah. many years ago, and even then, it was blessing. It was like getting blood out of a stone. Yeah. he's just yeah. one of those writers who is brilliant at what he does, but doesn't particularly want to talk about it very no. much. Very, no, very very self effacing to the to the point of painfulness yeah yeah um you know very very humble i read a little about him because he passed away last year just last year didn't he and i remember seeing a piece where his wife was saying how he he got it into his head that people didn't like his work yeah i mean how do you you even get that what robots of death is probably one of the most most treasured doctor who stories of all time Absolutely. It's extraordinary, isn't it, when you, when you think about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But I say, just a very humble man. He, he's he, he's not, um, you know, un, unlike um, certain writers. That he's just very, very humble and, and never really got it. How loved he was, I don't yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. And how how loved Tom Baker was and would remain loved too. When when we watch a story like this and we see Tom at the height of his powers, I think. Arguably, and that's that's the funny thing. Yeah, you think you look at stories like Talons, the stories that people talk about with bated breath, and actually, I think that Tom was probably never better than in this mm-hmm. this particular story. That's another reason why why I rate it so highly. But you th- you think this was 1977? He'd been he'd be in the show for another another three years properly, and you think what what was what was keeping him there? Was it was it that feeling of being of being in the in the center of something that was so culturally significant simon or was it simply the 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 feeling of knowing that you are not just someone's but lots of people's hero i think i think it was a combination of things i think it was a knowledge that as an actor as he has, has said himself it was the best role he ever did and i think he was aware at that point that it was probably the best role he was ever going to get so i think he was absolutely riding on the crest of a wave with regards to his own satisfaction in the role however much he might uh have, have sort of given the writers a hard time uh, it was it was all done in many ways because he loved the part so much i think also it was because he was very much aware that at that point he was hugely on the crest of a wave with regards to the public and and he's standing with the public and, and and how adored and how loved he was and as he has said so many times you know it's difficult to not be intoxicated by that degree of adoration any of us would be um you know he's he's not so he's not remotely shy about this he says of course that he absolutely loved being adored by people and so he was at the height of his powers with the public at this point interestingly it was two days after finishing filming on image of the fendal that tom baker and louise jameson went to the very first ever doctor who convention um in london um so so at this point as well fandom is absolutely on the ascendancy at this point and he's again at the heart of that so it would be very hard to not be intoxicated i think by 
what was happening in his world at that time. A friend of mine had, uh, he went to a, a personal appearance by Tom Baker at a local bookshop, and he describes to me how Tom took one look at him and did the thing where he took the hat off his own head and put it onto him as well, and said said something to him, and he just committed the entire thing to memory. Looked down at him with a big booming voice, you know, said some said something quite personal to him, you know, that, that he's cherished ever yeah. since. You think how many children had a moment like that? How many and how many times Tom must have done that, Stephen, and yet. Each child would have felt special in that moment. He's that kind of man, that kind of personality. I, I think Hartnell didn't want to leave um, no. in the first no. place. You know, no. as far as he was concerned, he was Doctor Who, and it was his part. Troughton had had a very successful character acting career before Doctor Who. It was becoming beleaguered towards the end. He was getting tired of that schedule and knew that he, if perhaps if he didn't leave at that point, he wouldn't be able to go back to that character acting variety that he had. I don't think Pertwee particularly wanted to leave up asking for more money and I don't think he wanted to leave. No. You know, but Tom Baker had been a jobbing actor. He'd never had major success and had a yearning to be very successful. As he said, he didn't want to be liked, he didn't really loved, he wanted to be adored and yeah. he got it. And however difficult whatever beleaguerments the series was going through now or was to go through over the next couple of years in this williams era in this trouble williams era the beleaguerment wasn't about his performance or his popularity absolutely not his popularity was going from strength to strength regardless of what behind the scenes problems were yeah. going on and wherever he went it was smiles it was last people delighted to see him and that's intoxicating to a man They've been working on a building like when he started. Why the hell would you want to give that up at that point? Yeah. When you when you're still riding the crest of that wave and everybody adores you, you know. Shall we That's... hear from Tom Baker himself one last time? Why not? So when I became Doctor Who, there was something unique about the program. Lots of actors know about playing famous heroes, but Doctor Who was so much more powerful and and, uh, and it seemed to me to be a life. I lived it. I mean, I, I, I mean, it was more fun being Doctor Who than Tom Baker. Tom Baker was just ordinary. But when I was given all these costumes and the, and the, and the, and the sonic screwdriver, <laughs> I dream about it still. <laughs> in, in many ways, you know, that, that, what, what I think has happened, I talked earlier on about how, as I say, he, he, he seemed so almost broken um, in 1983 by the role. And I think what seems to have happened to Tom in, in really probably the last 10 or so years, maybe longer, um, he's found a peace with the role that maybe after leaving it, as you said, Stephen, who would want to have given up all that intoxicating madness? Um, and so it would have been difficult to do that. And so maybe he was left with a degree of, of, of bitterness, of resentment, of disappointment, of whatever it is. And now, in his late years, he's clearly, I think, just found a, 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 not, not just a peace with mm. the role, but a, a, an enormous second love of the role. He loved being in it at the time. And now he loves the fact that he was in it uh, and people still love him for having been in it. And I think he's just reliving those memories, although he can't yeah. necessarily remember the details of it. He just knows, as he says himself, it was the best time of his life. And that, I think, is what he now revels in. He's made peace with the fact that it 
defines him actually as a person, but that in so many ways he defines it. That still, for so many people, yes, uh, and probably a lot of people who weren't even born when he was Doctor Who know that he is Doctor yeah. Who. Yeah. Um, as mu as much as they do, David Tennant, who's the twenty first century equivalent of of yes. the success the success the Doctor Who had under his aegis in the seventies yeah. was replicated uh, to a great extent in the twenty first century. They're, they're the they're the two sort of but, poles of this program and in, in, in the in its two yeah. sort of great iterations. But, um, but if you but if you were to pick out one, wouldn't it still be Tom that would come? Oh. Absolute pole of the program. He, he's there as the tent pole. He absolutely is the centre. And, with, and without without Tom Baker, I think as as you've rightly suggested, there wouldn't have been a twenty first century series, and it wouldn't. No. Have, and it wouldn't have. I and I personally don't think it certainly wouldn't have made it through the Williams era and all its beleaguerments no. if it hadn't been for the sheer force of charisma that Tom had that carried yeah. the, the Tom Baker show. As it had to be, and I, as I. The tonal changes in the Williams era are not, it doesn't make it my favorite era, but I've never ever blamed Tom for that because no. what kept me watching that program through its, its silliest excesses was Tom in the middle of it. Yeah. And however, when you said Tom at the top of his powers, I believe Tom Baker in Doctor Who was always at the top of his powers. I didn't always um, approve of every single choice he made, but when he made a choice, he committed to it. And he completely sold it. Yes. You know, and, and I think those choices needed to be made because there were gaps that had opened up that needed to be filled. And thank God he was there to fill them. Otherwise, it wouldn't have survived. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very much convinced of that. Talking about Tom Baker's choices, in time he did choose to leave this role that had changed his life. And when, whenever you get to that point in a, in a rewatch, or even if you're just reading back through Doctor Who history... It seems like not not just the end of an era, but the the passing of someone of something or someone, almost almost like a monarch of yes. some sort. It is incredible. It made headline news all over the world, and and Tom took the opportunity in in the press in the media, didn't he, to to do what Tom Tom does, and to be to be mischievous and yeah. And provocative, and to make sure that we never forget him, as if there's ever any chance of that. Simon, I remember this story breaking, not understanding not only why this hero was leaving this show, but how he could possibly carry on with that without him how does that work that's a story for another time, but this really was uh, it, it shook British television didn't it and British media. Oh, oh, it did undoubtedly. But then again, this is where I just wonder whether Tom at the time felt maybe that once he had left the show, the show would forget him and he would be forgotten and he would be consigned to the annals of TV history and people wouldn't really remember him very well. And maybe there was that, that bittersweet feeling that it had been great, but now it would move on with Peter Davison and he would he, he would all, all but be forgotten and, and how wrong he could be on that one because as we've said, you know, he is the one that people will forever remember, uh, uh, yeah. most principally with the role. I honestly do believe that. I don't think anybody will ever, ever surpass the no. success and the, and the enduring memory of, of, of Tom in that role. I think that, so, that, 
that melancholy that you detected in him, or, or bitterness, or, or whatever. Melancholy it was, is the perfect word, actually. Bro- you know, I think you said actual but a brokenness at, at Longleat, and and that illusion at the time of what you just suggested that he was going to be forgotten was must have been quite a powerful one because you know let's think about the ratings of season eighteen, then. Davison comes along, yes. and they put it on weekday nights, and the ratings fly through the roof again, don't they? Yeah. In in season nineteen, yeah. it's getting nines and tens, yeah. and and that's and so when he was at Longleat, and there's the five doctors, and he de- deliberately chose not to be in it, it did look as though it was sailing on fine without him, yes. and he was being consigned to television history. There was so there was there was that illusory bubble at that time, wasn't there? That the, the show was sailing to great heights and actually and didn't was. have anything at all to do with Tom Baker, it seemed. But then the sort of the ship foundered, the wilderness years came along, and then the memory, the cult of Tom Baker rose again, didn't it? You know. But and also very I think much the show so. just very recalibrated so. itself as realizing that actually its history was very, very important. Yeah. Um and, and, and Tom just sort of floated really above everybody else because because he was just so memorable at the time and he just took the show through the most popular era. Simple as that. There's no denying it. The, the fourth Doctor was uh, noticeable by his absence. Even He was in it sort of in the five Doctors, wasn't he? Technically, well, he was in it within the but, life of the character, but it's... At the time, of course, because we'd had seven years of Tom Baker, and what I really wanted at the time was to see some Hinchcliffe repeats, you know, desperately <laughs> wanted just to see the Robots of Death, Tons of yeah. or something like Pyramids of Mars again. It was like, well, it felt like he'd only just left when they did the five yeah. And what was wonderful yes. was, was the opportunity. We never thought they'd keep churning it out over and over again. The opportunity to see the, the Sharder footage, which, which yeah. seemed, seemed, seemed unlikely at the time. Uh- and the way they sewed it into the the narrative, it works it, brilliantly. It, 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 it was part of it, you know. It works brilliantly. I still think, in all honesty, that it was the right decision on his part not to appear in the Five Doctors. I, so. I would love him to have been there. Of course, I would. But I honestly think it probably was the right decision because, as you say, it was only a couple of years since he'd left. Um, and and part of it, I think, it would have overshadowed Peter Davison yeah. at the time. Um, and it was his show. It was yeah. Peter Davison's show at that point. So yeah. I think actually, Tom, if anything, maybe he was being selfish by not doing it. But actually, I would disagree and say, no, I think he was being quite selfless by letting at that point Peter Davison shine um, because it was his show. And I think Tom knew he would have overshadowed that yeah. so much by returning. He, he was yeah. accepted that his time had passed just in the same yes. way that Pertwee's had, that Hartnell's had, that yeah. Troughton's had. And eventually, the the fourth Doctor Tom, and Tom Baker did come in, sort of from the cold in the nineties. When when the VHS range really started to boom, wasn't it? When it when there was a a real sense of occasion around every single release there, and he built bridges with John Nathan Turner, became part of of that range of special releases and all sorts of things, yeah. leading to a small part in in Dimensions in Time, that charity special back in nineteen ninety three. So there's little moments, little footsteps on his way back to coming sort of back into Doctor Who properly into taking his rightful seat his rightful throne if you like as the as the, yeah. the king of, yeah. of doctor who yeah. and in time he'd be reunited with louise jameson on audio at big finish productions we'll have several seasons and box sets into that 
new era, the new Fourth Doctor adventures where he's been paired with, you know, not just Louise Jameson as Leela, but lots of other people too. They uh, they seem, they had a, a famously choppy relationship back in the late 70s. They've both spoken about that. But you can, every time you see them interviewed or read them interviewed, it's very clear the mutual respect and affection between them. That's lovely. And of course, Tom does appear in these special releases. So he's, he's been in one with the Tenth Doctor, which is the incredible audio production and he's appeared in several of the the tentpole box sets and, and anniversary specials there too so he's capable of, of coming to coming to parties isn't he and he eventually of course he did return to the television not as the fourth doctor but as as the curator we it was a, another incarnation of the doctor from heaven knows how far in the future but seeing tom baker back as any doctor on screen for however long back in 2013 well it, it set the anniversary off probably perfectly and i know he's spoken about that a little hasn't he he feels that nobody's really interested in him nobody made any time for him apart from matt smith, from matt but, smith. Yeah. but again yeah. is that more of is that more of a baker mystique is he building some more myth there i don't know and i i hope i never find out i suppose <laughs> Well, I, I mean, certainly that that moment in the 50th anniversary special was was obviously the highlight for me um, and for and for many many people. Um, I, I it was electrifying, still, Simon. It Absolutely was electrifying, electrifying. Is the word I was going to say. I can still feel the hairs go up on the back of my neck when I just think of suddenly hearing that voice um, because. I'd sort of sat through however long it had been thinking, oh, no, they really have. They've just done nothing with the classic Doctor at all. And I was heartbroken at that. So to, to just, OK, it was only in the last five minutes, but just to have Tom and it was so deftly done the way you you just hear his voice before you see him. It's just it was it was magical and and just lovely to see him back in in the role as far as i'm concerned he was the doctor he wasn't the curator no that's that's the doctor for me thank you very much i'll i'll take well, that that was the, that was the sort of the, the great vindication wasn't it because it had to be him it could only have been tom yes in that moment you know yes as the doctor the living doctor who epitomizes doctor who whether he's your favorite doctor he's not your favorite doctor whether you don't even like Tom Baker at all. There's just you can't deny his essential, quintessential Doctor Who nut more than any other. It is extraordinary how engaged he is with with the fandom, with the world of Doctor Who now. I know he doesn't do many conventions now, and I know he doesn't travel abroad now, certainly, but in recording audio material and, and signing box sets, he seems I don't know, he just seems like he like he gets it and gets us. I think he always understood children but i think the the adult thing his understanding of that i think he found it trickier to understand i think he found it elusive uh, but but now he, i think he revels in that as well when you see him signing these box sets and vinyls and everything else i, I think he he's reveling in that again he knows the affection's real it's not manufactured I think I think maybe what 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 happened is that of course he knew he was loved so much by children at the time that he was in the show, and I maybe he just hadn't quite clocked that all those children had now grown up, but still loved him just as much as they did when they were watching him in the show. And I think and, and so I think that sort of blindsided him a bit. Maybe I don't I just don't think it's something that he hadn't expected. No, we all still love him just as much as we did when we were ten. I think the penny started to drop when, you know, the likes of 
um, Little Britain lads, etc. <laughs> the, the, the people who were who were employing him in later years yeah. were saying, "Oh, well, we were watching it as kids." You know, they go, "Oh, oh right, <laughs> this, of course, these people are now growing up." But but not just in a cynical way, but the realization of the power of Doctor Who to stimulate the minds, the imaginations, the intellect of potential writers and television creators of the future. That must be a wonderful realization for Tom Baker to realize that those children grew up to become working television professionals and were inspired by the, the, the program that he, he was sitting at the center of. And, and that was, that was time as well in the early noughties, in the early noughties where he was doing Randall and Hopkirk and Little Britain. And he was also the voice of something for BT, wasn't he? Sort of the update yes. of the speaking clock oh, or was yeah. it something? It, it, was, it, was, um, it, was, it was, it was, you could send in a text message and you would get it back in Tom Baker would read it back <laughs> to you. Great. I, I knew I I knew it was something like that. I couldn't couldn't quite remember. But for a, a time, everything yeah. Tom Baker exploded yet again. What a character. What a cult figure. What a hero. Tom Baker absolutely embodied the role of the doctor. That that benevolent, curious alien hero, uh, like like no other before. Yeah. Or, or after, uh, and there's no offence to any of the gentlemen that have also done it. He left a mark on the classic series, certainly that would never really wash away. And for the overseas viewers, he was particularly irreplaceable and repeatable. The series would carry on, but uh, Tom Baker is 89 years old as of time of recording, and he's not just one of Britain's most beloved character actors or a cult figure, but he is a national treasure. Mm-hmm. I try not to wheel that one out all the time, but really, if he isn't, then who is? Correct. Absolutely. <laughs> there is there is none finer than, than Tom. He, he undoubtedly is my absolute number one hero. Always will be. Yet to meet the guy, I'm praying one of these days I, I just bump into him in Waitrose at some point. Um... <laughs> I was When I was in... King Lear, there was a, a, an article Richard, um, oh God, he was playing the Duke of Gloucester, very old friend of Tom's, and, and he was on his This Is Your Life. And I said, are you going to get him to come and see it? And he said, he's not going to come and see King Lear, Richard. He'd tell me to fuck off. If I... <laughs> <laughs> and so, so that wasn't on the goals. Uh, Richard O'Callaghan, that's his name. Um, lovely, old, lovely old actor. And and that that wasn't that wasn't. Well, I was watching I... Richard O'Callaghan in something the other day in an old episode of Public Eye. Right. Fantastic oh, yes. actor. I love yeah, him to yeah, bits. Yeah. Well, extraordinary bloke as well. But he they, and he had some amazing Tom Baker stories, of course, because he was one of his very very closest friends. Um. So that was that didn't happen. There was I, I was at a couple of events that he was at speaking, and I just never felt that I wanted to spoil the relationship <laughs> that I <laughs> had with the character on the screen. And then one day, I was walking along Oxford Street um, towards Centre Point, towards Tottenham Court Road, and as I was walking along, around the corner came Tom Baker. And I, for a moment, this was, you know, probably about 1998 or something. And for a moment, I looked up, he looked up, and I thought for a split second that he was going to recognize me from having watched him on the television. (laughs) And he looked up, and I looked up, and then he sort of immediately looked down, because obviously 
I was giving him that sort of demented fan look. And, oh Christ, here's another one. And he sort of and he sort of immediately looked down and walked past. And I sort of I was completely sort of disorientated. I thought, oh, oh my <laughs> God, that was Tom Baker. But just walking down the street. And I followed him into Soho for a while because I, I just I just just completely obsessed by <laughs> the thing that was Tom Baker being actually there. Was it sort of was somebody? Was it Michael Caine? When some people say to him, "Oh, you're here," they can't believe that the person's actually said, "Well, I've got to be somewhere, <laughs> haven't I?" Um, but that Tom Baker was there inhabiting the same space on Oxygen. And, I, and I, then I thought, "This is ridiculous. I'm stalking him now," and I because he, he was probably going to do a voiceover. But that, that is as close as I ever want to be. No, I don't want to meet, because I might get him on a oh, bad I, day. I, 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 I would just love to be able to just, to just meet him, just shake him by the hand and say thank you. And that would, that would do me. I was in the same room as Tom Baker once. It was a few feet away. And I thought, have I? Have I got the balls to go up and talk to him and say the thing that everybody always says? And by the time I decided that I was going to do it, he'd gone. <laughs> maybe, maybe just as well. Still, it, it, it passed. Uh, the diamond season of reviews here on Type 40, though, that hasn't passed. It's going to continue as we make our way through the incarnations of the Doctor, all to celebrate the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. And that's the old girl starting up and calling time on this edition of Type 40. I'll be back with another one soon. Look out for that wherever you found this. It could have been at the dedicated home feed for Type 40, at Type 40 podbean.com or maybe we rolled up on the podcatcher of your choice apple Podcasts, spotify iHeartRadio, amazon music all those places we're also on youtube the world's largest streaming platform here on the type 40 channel and with dedicated video editions of every single podcast now along with our sister show type 40 live that weekly magazine format doctor who live stream review show completely raw where anything can happen anything Thing can be said and often is you can get all of that here on the type 40 channel we're still on the fabulous fandom podcast network's master feed loaded up with so many treats for your ears never mind weekly they're coming at you on the daily so please consider a trip sideways in time for more quality shows from the fpn Maybe you'd like to have your say about all of this, your review of our review, if you like. Well, you can chip in too. Of course you can through our social media, Instagram and Twitter, at Type 40 Doctor Who. There's the comment section here on YouTube as well, so you can type your, yeah, have a go at us. If we, if you think we've scored this too much or scored it too little, you can let loose there in the comments section all of us join with other incarnations of other Time Lords over on Facebook in the Type 40 Facebook group. That's where you'll find people feasting on the classic series in this 60th anniversary year. Same with New Doctor Who too. We've all got our favourites, haven't we, from across the decades. And lots of us too looking into the future at all new Doctor Who with uh, David Tennant as the 14th Doctor and Shuti Gatwa as the 15th Doctor. Coming at us from everywhere, aren't they? Can't keep track. And you can e email us type 40 doctor who at gmail.com to get at it we'd love to hear from you about what you particularly hold dearest about the fourth doctor the doctor mr tom baker simon where can people find you on social media uh they can come and say hello to me on facebook uh, under doctor who the hoonatics w-h-o-n-a-t-i-c-s come and find me on there as the uh, admin and Stephen Noonan, delighted to have had your company on this edition of the show again. 
a pleasure, a pleasure, a second pleasure, and hopefully more to come. He's down I mean, for more, everybody. Well, of course. But obviously, if you want to hear Stephen Noonan as the Doctor, you can hear his exploits over at BigFinish.com. There with several box sets and other releases, and he's part of the 60th anniversary series too. So, so go and check those out at BigFinish.com. Com. Okay, and yeah, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter as The Space Book, where I'm wheezing and groaning, ranting and raving about all things geeky inside and outside of the TARDIS, including real life. Occasionally, I do reconnect <laughs> with real life when I absolutely have to. Swept up in the 60th anniversary year, of course I am. I hope you are too. So you can connect with me over there and vent your spleen about what the BBC are giving us later this year and what they're not giving us. It's been an interminable wait for them to bring us something other than the tiniest of teasers, but we'll make it through to November together here at Type 40. I, I'm sure we can. Okay, yes, yeah, so thank you, Simon and Stephen, for your company. And thanks to you for listening out there. We always have the time if you have the space here at Type 40. But that's it for another one. You take care. We'll speak to you all again soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>